Hello and welcome to Episode 7 of The East Meets the West. I am your host, Rigor, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Patsy the Angry Nerd. How goes it today, Pat? It goes fairly well, uh, like we were talking about just a moment ago. It is uh, rather chilly out today, but uh, other than that, things are going uh, fairly well. You know, I'm, uh, I'm excited to chat about these movies. Excellent, excellent. So am I. So, folks, before we start talking about the films today, I just wanted to mention that this show, actually both this show and Then Is Now Podcast, have joined the Dorkening Podcast Network. So, Patsy, can you just tell the audience a little bit about the Dorkening? Yeah, the Dorkening is a podcast network with uh, close to 40 shows now. I have like five of them that I do. Um, but we're a podcast network, uh, we're based, uh, mostly in New England and, uh, we cover between, uh, all the different shows. We have, uh, sports shows. We have a couple of sports shows. We have some horror shows. We have a wrestling show. We have now, uh, you know, obviously that is now, and this show, which is something that we hadn't had on the network, you know, so we're kind of branching out. So there's something for everybody. And you can see all of the shows if you go to thedorkening.com, or you can go uh, join the Dorkening Facebook group, and you'll be able to see all the different shows and uh, find out all the different hosts. And yeah, I mean, pretty much anything that you could want, uh, from comic books to spaghetti westerns, uh, you're going to find on the Dorkening. We have great, uh, we have a bunch of live shows where we have great interview guests. Um, you know, we recently interviewed Michael Dorn from uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. We've interviewed just so many different people. Uh, it's it's awesome. And, uh, you know, happy to be uh, adding this and uh, then is now to the uh, repertoire. Well, that's awesome, dude. And I'm just so happy to be here as well and be part of the, the group. So, yes, listeners, I encourage you to check out all the great podcasts that are on there at thedorkening.com. Yep. Okay, today's films that we're going to cover are Shaolin Rescuers from 1979 and God Forgives, I Don't from 1967, starring Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. Now, last episode, I briefly mentioned that I had a reason for picking this, and we'll get a little bit deeper into that later, but mainly we wanted to start covering Terrence Hill's body of spaghetti western work because we'd like to have him on the show eventually. So, Mr. Hill, if you're listening to this, please reach out to us and we'll set up a time to interview you. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, that would be great. So he's very active on Facebook, so um, hopefully he'll uh, he'll find our show. Now, um, as we continue diving into the Shaw Brothers catalog of films, specifically the Venom Mob films, we come to the fifth movie to star those amazing actors called Shaolin Rescuers from 1979, also known as Avenging Warriors of Shaolin. Now, I do want to preface things by saying that between the subtitles and the various places online, I had a little issue trying to figure out the character names because there were slightly there were slight variations everywhere. So if I if I say the name incorrectly somewhere along the way, um, you know, I apologize in advance if I confuse anyone out there listening. Ni 
叫药铺去买伤药，给什么人治伤的？说。说不定洪熙官就曾在豆腐店。洪熙官不在豆腐店。买点豆腐去了那么久。The film opens with five members of the Ten Tigers of Shaolin: Hong Ziguan, Monk Sande, Hu Hui Wian, Li Jin Lun, and Lian Yasung, fighting members of the Wu Dong or Wu Tang Clan. The priest Pai Mei, referred to as White Brows here, and Gao Chin Chung. During the fight, all the Shaolin heroes are killed except for Hong Ziguan, who narrowly escapes. Chen Ai Chin is a local bean curd maker who uses the mantis style and likes to spar with his friend Ying Cha Po, a waiter who can use anything as a weapon, particularly a bowl and a pair of chopsticks. Although the two work menial jobs in which they are unhappy, they dream of one day becoming great heroes and dying for noble causes. Chu Sai is a light skill student at a local school who constantly is abused by his master and a fellow student. He ends up befriending Ah Chun and Cha Po after they save him from getting beaten up by his fellow students. Meanwhile, Pai Mei, Gao Chin Chung, and his fighting men arrive at a temple looking for the injured Hung Si Quan, and end up in a fight with the monks and Han Chi. Han Chi escapes, but the monks are killed, so Chi goes to look for Hung Si Quan. Meanwhile, Hung has arrived at Chu Sai's school as the master is an old comrade. However, the teacher rejects Hung's request for help and immediately reports to Gao. Chu Sai, Ah Chan, and Cha Po find the injured Hung Si Quan, and they conjure up schemes to get him medicine. Once healed, Hung Si Quan thanks the three by teaching them special techniques to perfect their skills. Han Chi also meets up with the four after helping them in a fight at Cha Po's restaurant. However, Chu Sai's fellow student has spotted Chu purchasing the medicine for Hung. He reports this to Gao Chin Chung and leads the Wu Tang Clan to Hung Si Quan's hiding place. Hung and company escape and hide in a dye factory. Although they are trapped, Gao decides to wait until dawn to attack so as not to risk being attacked by surprise in the dark. Morning arrives and Gao Chin Chung attacks. Although Gao and his men are, ki- are all killed. Chu Sai is killed in the battle, while Ah Chin and Cha Po are mortally wounded. With government troops on the way, Ah Chin and Cha Po volunteer to stay behind and occupy the troops so that Han Chi and Hung Si Quan can escape. The film ends as the two realize they've achieved their dream: dying for a noble cause. All right, Patsy, what's your initial impression of this film? I liked this a lot, and um, this might be, um, from what we've seen so far, this might be the best choreography. Uh, of any of the films, one of the things that I really liked is that it showcased the athleticism and agility and acrobatics of the various fighting styles. Just watching these these different、uh, these different fights、uh, throughout the film, even just like the sparring, you know, using anything as a weapon, you know, tables and 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 chairs, and there's even a little bit of drunken boxing kicked,、uh, you know, sprinkled in. Uh, with some rude customers at the restaurant, <laughs> but oh, it was funny. It was、uh, lighthearted.、Uh, even the the fight scenes, which you know is typical with these guys, you know they're they're always smiling and laughing and having a good time, even when you know the stakes are are really high. 
I will say that the ending of this one reminded me a lot of the uh, the first one we did, the other um, uh, the other Shaolin one, Invincible Shaolin. Yeah, where you know the the army shows up and like some guys run away at the end, and like that's just the end of the film. Just kind of ends on a freeze frame. Um, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I had a lot of fun with this one, uh, and it was a lot longer than. Uh, most of the films we've been watching, most of the films we've been watching have been around like 80 minutes. Uh, this one was almost two hours. Yeah, it was really good. I, I agree with your assessment too. I, I really obviously didn't know what to expect going in, probably same as you. And I was just so pleasantly surprised how like funny, engaging, and action-packed it was. Like from beginning to end, it was nonstop action. I just loved it. I watched a uh, a different version than you did, I believe, because... Uh... I was able to get it uh, in a different in a different way, and the subtitles I had they had different names for some of the characters than what's listed on IMDb, which I found a little bit confusing. But yeah, uh, yeah, that's what I was kind of saying in, or earlier. It's so we're just going to have to stumble through it as best we can. <laughs> yeah, it was it was kind of weird, but it's also like the name of the movie. If you search, you know, Shaolin Avengers, it comes up as. What was that? What's the other title that comes up as? Oh, it was um, Avenging Warriors of Shaolin. Yeah, so it's two different titles, and like you get different characters based on the subtitles. I'm guessing like you know, one's the Americanized version and one's the Chinese version. So right, right. It's basically when they released it in Hong Kong, it had the um, the Chinese name, and then it had it was called um, Shaolin Rescuers. But the, uh, here we go. So the Chinese name is uh, Ji Shi Ying Zhong, which translates as street market heroes, referring to the characters of Chen, Yang, and Han. Mm-hmm. But then uh, the Shaolin Rescuers was the English title in Hong Kong. And then it came over. To, oh, it's also the uh, English title on the release, the DVD release. But what, um, the film first came out on March 24th in 79 in Hong Kong as Shaolin Rescuers. But it didn't get to the United States until May 11th of 84. Apparently only in Hartford, Connecticut, and that's where it was called Avenging Warriors of Shaolin. So that can add to the confusion of people trying to watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh it's kind of funny, but you know, it is uh you know, whatever you call it, you know, like they say a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Um this is a, this is an awesome movie. Like I had so much fun with it. I actually watched it uh this morning because uh Due to circumstances beyond my control, I wasn't able to watch it last night, so I got up early and watched it this morning, and I just finished watching it maybe half an hour ago, and uh, so it's it's very fresh in my mind. Oh, good, good. I will say, though, uh, some of the – there is still that element of far-fetched feats of, uh, of martial arts, like, you know, strangling somebody with a ponytail and, you know, <laughs> leaving bloody cuts across someone's chest – with the said ponytail. Um, right. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, all right, come on. And then, you know, obviously the the leaping ability. It's like, oh, I'm going to jump 30 feet straight up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they did that, that quite a bit, too, which I loved. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean that's fine. But, like, the, the fight scenes where they're doing backflip after backflip and, and, you know, jumping and spinning and, you know, Stuff that you would see on like the, the high, the uneven parallel bars on a, uh, on a, uh, at the Olympics, like 
some awesome, awesome yeah. stuff. Like the way you they throw everything together and 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 new new weapons, which I always like. Every time we we see one of these films, there's a, a different set of weaponry that's used. Right. I will say the uh, when they first when they attack the first temple, and they're like, "All right, these are the two guys we've got to watch out for." He's he was soaked in like special herbs yeah. as a kid, so he can't be hurt <laughs> except his crotch. It's like, right. <laughs> and they essentially shove a sword through his crotch. That was horrible. And then they're like, all right, the other guy, he's weak on his eyes and his crotch. So you attack the eyes and I'll get him. I'll get the crotch. And like, right. it was seriously a Three Stooges routine because they kept trying to poke him in the eyes and he kept blocking it. And the other guy goes up behind right. him and kicks him in the balls. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> I am a I'm a super ultra master of of martial arts. Here's my finishing move. It's like oh my god, like all these guys are fighting with like these this amazing choreography with you know the the copper ring and the and the giant like warhammer for lack of a better term. And it, it like, looked like a pumpkin on the end of a stick. yeah, like it, it it definitely looked like a pumpkin. But like they're making all these amazing amazing moves and doing all this amazing stuff and it's like oh we defeated him with a kick to the crotch right <laughs> oh man kind of anticlimactic the, yeah this well especially like the setup because i felt like that should even though it wasn't crucial to the plot i would have liked to have seen you know the guy who's impervious to stuff a little bit more before they killed him you know they just killed him right away like oh that's what he can do let's go kill him and they killed him yeah, we saw like one one time that he blocked the sword, but like they immediately exposit about it. They're like, "Oh, he blocks the sword with his chest," and and they're like, "Oh yeah, he can. He's impervious. The only way to defeat him is to kick him in the balls." Like, right? <laughs> like make it something cool. Like, oh, he's you know, he's only uh, you know, you have to hit him like just under the jaw, you know, with, like, a specific pressure point. Like, that would have been cooler as opposed to, you know. Stab him in the crotch. <laughs> yeah. And they stabbed him. Like, that sword went in halfway. Like, oh, yeah. Then they pulled out that sword and used it on the other guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> he got it about as bad as the guy in, uh, was it Mass Avengers, where he jumped over the carriage and landed right on the spear? Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was Golden Arms, I think. But yeah, I, I know when you were. I knew which uh, which thing you were talking about. Yeah, but yeah, man. Like that's not my favorite. Uh, not my favorite fight scene. <laughs> it's just uncomfortable to watch. Oh man. So all right, let's talk a little bit first about the the cast and stuff, and then we'll really dive into the film here. Um, so of course we've got the amazing, wonderful Chang Che directing, mm -hmm. and he also co-wrote it with Ni Kuang again and another person named Nan Pin Sai. And now for our cast, we've got a guy that you and I have not seen before. Uh, his name was Jason Pai, Pai Piao, or I've seen it spelled Bai Biao. And uh, he played Hung Si Kwan, who was on the run from, I guess, the government and um, was, you know, the one who was injured in the movie and they had to get him medicine. And it took this guy, Jason, to, uh, many years to achieve stardom. He was born Leo Ko-young in 1946, and he started many films. However, they all pretty much failed to garner him much attention, and it wasn't until 75 when 
Um, Pai signed a con- contract with Hong Kong's newly founded TV station called CTV that he suddenly became a household name with a string of popular costume martial arts TV shows. And then uh, CTV went out of business around 1978, so he starred in uh, TV shows for other stations, and then he made a triumphant return to the Shaw Brothers. So from 79 till the mid-80s, he was one of the studi- studio's busiest action stars with, it, with as many as five movie releases per year. And in the 1990s, he continued to have major roles in action series and movies like King of Robbery. So I'm looking to move forward to see this guy in more movies. I, I liked him in this. Yeah, I thought he was uh, was very good. But I mean, it's it's tough to find a weak link in this entire cast. Oh yeah, like it's, yeah. We've got we've got a. Oh, go ahead. I was gonna say it's it's you know you see these movies over and over and over again, you know, and you see the same actors, but it's like. Because they, you know, and I keep saying this, you know, every week, like they have such great chemistry. So even, you know, in their, you know, just their dialogue or their fight scenes, like they're so intimately familiar with each other that you you have this camaraderie and friendship. And one of the things that I enjoyed about this, and again, it reminded me of uh, the other Shaolin film, was watching... You know, watching the uh, the training go on at the uh, the, the tofu store. I was going to call it yeah. a bakery. It's definitely not a bakery. Uh, the tofu right. store where he's doing the push-ups on his thumbs. Like, oh, so cool. Yeah. That was such like a scene out of Rocky where he's just training with everyday objects like the big bag of beans and, uh, you know, pushing the, the, the um, what was it, that big cement thing that turned i guess that's what they did to grind up the beans yeah yeah he was using it because i was confused i was like what's he doing with this what like what are the nails there for like right (laughs) it's like he didn't use the nails for anything maybe it was just like a way to place his like where to place his arm Um, right and if he hit the nails he knew he did it wrong and he'd have to you know try and like because if you watch his flashback the the master was kept using a stick not to hit him but to guide his arms to show him what position they should be in. Yep. So maybe that was the same thing with the nails. Yeah, so it's like okay, you know, if I hit the nails, I know that I've done this wrong. And like that's my yeah. my punishment to myself is, you know, scraping myself up, which makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, it was it was so much fun. Like I really really enjoyed like the uh, and, the, and then like his his buddy comes in and they're like you know fighting over the tofu and like that choreography was like I love when they do that in these movies where they have just kind of like it's almost like a showcase of like this is check out our skill see how great we are right <laughs> see what we can do and how much fun we are like to interact with each other yeah because like the first few minutes has no dialogue like after that first main fight scene. Like, there's no dialogue. It's just them kind of, like, oh, yeah. laughing back and forth at each other. I thought something was wrong yeah. with my with my with uh, the version of the movie I was watching. I'm like, oh, they just keep <laughs> laughing. But, yeah, it was great. Yeah, I, you know, I kind of did think there was something odd, too. And then I was like, oh, okay, they're just not talking. It's It was almost like a, um, like a Buster Keaton kind of thing where yeah. they didn't need to talk. They just keep, like, pointing at each other and laughing. Like... Yeah. So we've got, of course, as we said, the Venom Mob cast here. We've got Lu Feng, 
who plays the villainous Gao Chin Chung. I thought he was particularly villainous in this one. I know he's played villains in other ones that we've seen, but he was like, he just had a look of evil in his eyes, mm. you know? Yeah, he, he was, was not a nice guy. He, the, usually like even, like even in, you know, uh, Golden Arms, they, there's almost like a playfulness to the villain. Um, right. This was, there was no playfulness to him. This was all business, all like very serious, like just, you know, 100% all in bad guy. Yeah, yeah. I almost wonder if that was sort of a counterbalance because there was so much playfulness with the main characters. Yeah, it it definitely um because the fight scenes were fun. Like it reminded me a lot of you know, like some of the the Jackie Chan stuff, especially, you know, when they start introducing the 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 stools and the and the chairs and you know, it was definitely a contrast between you know, him just being this ruthless unstoppable like killing machine and yeah. You know, these guys that are, you know, yeah, they're fighting for their lives, but they're also having a good time. Right. <laughs> so then we've got Lo Mang, who played Chen Ah Chin, or I, I saw it as Jin, I think, in the subtitles. Yeah. Um, so it's either Chen or Jin. Some of the, 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 you know what it is, is some of the pronunciations are unclear. Like a P is generally pronounced like a B, I guess, and a Q is like a sh kind of sound. So it's it's hard, but then Jen, the ch I guess is more like a J sound or Jin. I mean, it, so. in my subtitles there was Young Badao, and it's like, yes, that's like I'm looking. I'm like, that name is not anywhere. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I saw that in a couple of places. We'll get into that when we get over to Philip Quackwood. I wanted to talk a little bit about Chang Shang here, who, as I said before, or Chiang Shang. He's my favorite of the um, Venoms, and uh, last uh, two episodes ago, we talked about Philip Kwok and his backstory. So, give you a little bit about Chiang Sheng. He played, of course, Han Chi, who is Han Solo's cousin. Mm -hmm. And we, <laughs> I'm just kidding. As we've mentioned previously, many of these Chinese actors went by several different names in real life, and he is no exception. Some of his um, alternate names are Chao Gang Sheng, Chao Kang Sheng, Chu Gong Sang. Chu Kang Sang, Kong Sang, Kwong Sang, and of course, just Venom, which I think Philip Kwok was also just referred to as Venom. Chiang Sheng was born on April 4th in 1951 in Taiwan and was originally named Chu Kang Sang. Uh, he grew up in the Fuxing Opera Troupe in Taiwan and became a stunt actor in the film industry afterwards. Uh, when director Chang Che founded his own production company in 1974, he went to Taiwan looking for talent. And Chiang Chang was one of the people that he invited to come back with him to Hong Kong. He joined Shaw Brothers in 1976 as a basic actor and got his prominent role in Chang's Shaolin Temple that same year. His first leading role arrived a couple years later in The Five Venoms. His boyish charm and supreme agility gave him the nickname Cutie Pie by Venom fans, got him cast in pretty much all the Venom films during their era. Uh, he was a light skills martial arts expert who specialized in acrobatics, jumping, flipping, and rolling, along with a variety number of weapons. Double weapons, I think, was his sort of weapon of choice in certain films. Um, he cleverly incorporated this training with on-screen fight choreography to showcase the fastest, most nimble, and most intricate fight routines ever seen on screen. 
Chang also went behind the camera and tried out as Chang's assistant director, as well as uh, being a martial arts choreographer in various films. In 1981, with the support of Chang, he went back to Taiwan and founded a new production company with his Taiwanese cohorts. Chang acted and choreographed the action scenes in their debut film, Ruthless Tactics. And um, along with Philip Kwok, he starred in uh, Ninja in the Deadly Trap, and then he directed a movie called The Ghosts in 1983, uh, Attack of the Drunken Goddess in 1984, and Exciting Dragon in 1985. But um, his life kind of uh, got a little, uh, uh, took a downward turn here because afterwards he remained in Taiwan because that's what his wife requested. And unfortunately, it was difficult to find work there at the time. And he became very depressed, ended up getting a divorce, started drinking heavily, and he died of a heart attack in 1991. But, you know, his remarkable on-screen presence and his film legacy is still felt today. There's all kinds of fan clubs and stuff and fan pages about him. Yeah, and, you know, obviously we're, you know, talking about him on a you know, semi-weekly basis and, you know, extolling his virtues and, and talking about how awesome he was, uh, you know, in the films that he appeared. And... You know, I think he's left a uh, a really awesome legacy. I agree. I agree. So then we've got Kuo Chui, a.k.a. Philip Kwok, who was um, young Cha Po or young, like the one you said, <laughs> young Dao, Dao Po. Mm-hmm. Or, I don't know. I've got it as Ying and Young. Yeah. I have, um, he, he was awesome. The, what were you going to say? I said I have a Ying Cha Po as well. Okay, we'll go with that then, Ying Chapo. Um, he was so good in this, but it was interesting how usually he's sort of the standout character because he's so badass. And in this, he was so friggin' funny, like the facial expressions he would make. And like, I thought this sort of, this movie, they all shined equally. Whereas, you know, he didn't, no one really stood out amongst everyone. They were all kind of, at least in my mind, I thought they were all kind of equal. Yeah, I I, uh, I agree with that. Like, they all had their uh their shining moments um they all seem to uh you know have equal share of the spotlight and you, they all show, showed their skills off well but he was just i mean there's a one scene where he he leaps up onto the poles hanging over the uh, you know across the the ceiling and he he hooks his feet onto them and is hanging upside down just by his feet. It, I was like, how? <laughs> yeah. It, it, it reminded me of, uh, the scene in 1989's, uh, Batman film where, uh, you know, he gets kicked and like falls off like this, you know, the, the bell tower at the, uh, in the, in the climactic fight scene and manages to like swing back up, it's like, wait a minute, what? You know, and yeah. <laughs> Vicky Vale saw him like swinging from the gravity boots earlier in the in the film, like just swinging back and forth upside down. I was like, ah, oh, that's. I can see where they took that from. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he nonetheless was great. He just, I. It's so funny because watching him in so many badass roles, I I was really taken aback by the fact that he was so funny he was like almost like a little kid in this you know actually him and lo Meng were both kind of like a couple of kids yeah and i loved their dynamic 
Like, you know, they just Yes. It's almost like uh they were playing teenagers. Like that's how right. it, that's how it felt. It was kind of like uh I mean, it's not the same type of analogy, but when you had uh in Step Brothers with uh Will Farrell and <laughs> um John C. Riley, like yeah, they're like men in their forties, but they're essentially playing the roles like they're teenagers. Right. And like that's how this was. Like they're goofing off at work and like stealing food and Yeah. Not being rude to customers, but like dealing with rude customers in exciting ways. Right, right. It, I totally agree with that because they're like you know, it's like, you know, when you had those schlub jobs that you did when you were a teenager and then the boss would say something and you make a face behind his back or like even Lomang at one point like raised his fist like he was gonna pound the boss in the head and then he like quickly took it away when the guy turned his head. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, like that. They definitely had, uh, I think, a lot of fun with this, uh, with these roles for the two of them. But they were also my favorite part of the movie. Like the their fight yeah. scenes, the choreography was just superb. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, just real quickly, continuing on, we've got um, Sun Qian played the student uh, Chu Sai. And as we mentioned in a previous episode, Sun Chen's only main skill was kicking. And so as the movies progressed, and in particular this movie too, his on-screen fighting scenes became less and less and less because he just couldn't keep up with the other uh, Venoms with all the acrobatics and, and the, the various styles that they could do. Yeah, and I, I kind of noticed that. I'm like, wow, he's you know, you know, relegated to the guy that's getting bullied. Like, right. Like the only you know, punch he landed was on that, like, I don't know, for, for, if I were to refer to him as, like, you know, the, uh, the American stereotype, the Chad of the group, it's like, oh, do you know who my dad is? Like, you know, Chad from the Yacht Club, you know, like, that's, that's the vibe I I got from him. You know what I called him in my notes? I called him Malfoy. He was (laughs) like a dark-haired Malfoy. Yeah. (laughs) Spalding smells. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just like, it's like, oh, did you see he tried to hit me? Like, he attacked somebody. He's like, oh, he tried to hit me. It's like, mm. <laughs> like, everybody in that group was such a jerk. I'm glad they're all dead. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I think the actor who played Malfoy was Ku Kwan Chung. I couldn't really get a character name on him, so I'm not sure if that's. The character's name or the actor's name, but I'm going with the actor's name. Yeah, I think so. So, and then we had a, a few others. We had Wang Li as Brother Wang, Yang Swing as Fang, Fan Tian Kong, Yu Tai Ping played Zhu Fang, Tony Tam Jan Dung played Tiger Kid, and Lao Shi Kuang played Leopard Kid. And did you notice they both had leopard print shirts? The Tiger Kid didn't have tiger stripes? Yeah, I was like, oh. Well, I was kind of surprised they didn't just refer to him like they usually do in these movies as like what their weapon is. You know, I would have called him, you know, Tiger Kid and Copper Ring. Right, right. But I guess they needed to have like some kind of synergy between the two characters. I mean, yeah, they both looked like they were, you know, 14. So I guess the yeah. the kid moniker kind of works. But Tiger Kid was the uh, the one that had like the deadly kicks, and Leopard Kid was the one that had the copper ring that he kept using on everybody. So, right, I'm not quite sure. Like they didn't remind me. Like 
you would think that the tiger kid would be doing like tiger style martial arts, like <laughs> right. <laughs> but he didn't. So it's like, oh, well, some tigers like to kick. I guess I don't know. Well, I mean, that's you know, for anybody who does not have a cat or hasn't dealt with cats, they're. Their front claws are curved a little differently, so they will latch onto something so it can't get away, and then they will kick with their bigger, thicker hind feet because they have thicker claws right. on their back feet. So that's kind of like their their fighting style, which is not how tiger uh, kung fu works. You don't grab a guy and then just start kicking him with your back feet. Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Oh, man, that's so funny. Yeah, I had a cat that used to do that to my forearm. He'd just like, jump on and start gnawing on my knuckles and then scratching the mm-hmm. my, my forearm with his back feet. <laughs> yep, that's what they do. Grab and grab and kick and you know, use the claws that are curved inwards, which is, you know, kind of the, uh, the tiger style where you, um, and we've talked about this a little bit before where you're, you're strengthening your, your knuckles and your fingertips, you know, kind of like, so you can do push-ups on your, your thumb or push-ups on your, your thumb and index finger. You strengthen those, you know, you do the, the, like the iron hand technique and then you're able to use your hand almost as, Claws like there's eagle claw and there's, I think, uh, cat's paws, another version of it, but like it's the same thing. Like you're able to use your fingers as uh, almost like I don't want to say blades, but you're able to put holes in stuff. Like if you if you look at some of the uh, trees that you'll find, and I think we saw this in one of the other movies where there's like holes in like trees outside of like a, a Shaolin temple. And that's from fingertips. Like, yeah, you're putting holes in a tree with your fingertip because you strengthen it up. And like, that's uh, a variation of that style. That's so cool. I don't recommend just doing it. I recommend trying, you know, right. training for it first. <laughs> yeah. Don't start trying to poke your fingers through, through wood and stuff people's skulls and you got to see a little bit of that fighting style where i forget who it was now but i remember they put their their hands up in the fighting stance and they had their index fingers kind of uh extended a little bit yeah almost look like they're getting ready to like scratch an itch or something and that's why like you right. you'd have your uh your knuckle trained so you'd be able to strike with the knuckle and because it, if you hit somebody with your fist it's like that flat surface, but if you hit them with the knuckle, it's almost like a, a penetrative attack. Like you could crack right. someone's sternum, like at a specific point. Like you're focusing all the energy from the punch into that small point, as opposed to that larger surface area. If that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I can see that. Imagine, just imagine if you had claws, like uh, not even like Wolverine, but just little claws that came out of your knuckles and. You punch someone in the sternum with that. Oh yeah, or like the guys that put the like the claws on their knuckles. Right, right. Oof. Oh man, we haven't seen that quite yet. Although we did see a couple of different little like little um little tridents. They weren't really size, but they were tridents. I think that's how Gao finally kills. Um, I forget which one it was now, but he throws them up in the air and kills one of. Oh no, he didn't quite kill him, but Philip Cox's character got them in the chest. Yeah, and that was like the weakest thing, like. He threw them up in the air and they fell down like right. and embedded them. Like that was a little far fetched, but it's like you just lost to a dude like 
wielding yeah. forks. <laughs> He's the blue Raja. <laughs> like he beat that guy with the dual uh, broadswords with the with the little forks earlier. Yeah. And what was it? It was um, I think it was Lo Meng that had a big trident and he was spinning it on the chest of the, one of the bad guys. Yeah, that was cool. Like that was right before like the the final final fight. Yeah, against uh, Lu Fang, but it's like it's like oh that was that was interesting. Like I like how he you know they had all the weapons stored up on the roof and he starts throwing them to everybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and Gao intercepts the spear and he's just like oh man. <laughs> he was so that whole him like whipping the spear around was so amazing. That was just such amazing choreography. Oh yeah, like those those fight scenes. Like I, I really like the um, and not ranged weapons, but like, like the 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 spears and the and the like the tridents and stuff like that when they're using like the longer ranged weapons. Those are so cool. Like especially if they're fighting somebody that's using sm- like a like a sword or you know like sai or you know something like that. Getting to see the different weapons going up against each other, you know, it's, you know. Right. I mean, it's no flag, but you know. Which is apparently <laughs> the most unbeatable weapon in all of martial arts. Um, well, there was the scene where Philip Kwok beat up Malfoy with a, a, a cloth napkin. That's true. Yeah, he was he was slapping him around with the. With the I was like, "What is that? Like a sash? Like what is he beating him up with?" I thought it was a napkin. I don't know. I mean, it, it's, all I know is that he uh, he just had like a strip of cloth that he was that he was using to fight with, and it was awesome. <laughs> Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classics and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Did you know 46, I'm sorry, 47.66% of this film is an action sequence? which is a lot because Life Gamble, for example, that we did last episode, only had 13.58% of the film being an action scene or a fight scene. Yeah, and that that one was, uh, I think, my least favorite, like what we were talking about. It's like 
It's like where's yeah. you know where's where's the where's the fighting? Like oh this guy rolled a die. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. You know as opposed to this one where it's like oh this dude's like flipping around and you know beating up guys in a restaurant with using chopsticks in a bowl like. Right. <laughs> like, this is great. You know what it reminded me of? And I, I'm 100% sure that they used this movie as uh, inspiration. Uh, what? Kung Fu Panda. The scene where... Oh, yeah. Where the, he's trying to eat the dumplings. And, he, yeah. What was it? He kept taking the dump. Though Someone kept taking the dumpling from him? Dustin Hoffman's uh, Sifu character kept taking the dumplings. That's and right. he was using the bowl right. and the chopsticks and it's like that's 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 where they got this from like it's funny watching these films and then seeing you know being reminded like oh this reminds me of this fight scene oh this reminds me of this like you see the influence that these movies have had on so many other uh, amazing films in the genre right it's like they helped you know it's like you know watching Kurosawa films and seeing their impact on westerns. Oh yeah, yeah, and f- it's just so it's just so incredible. And the whole scene where um, uh, Philip Kwok and Lomeng are are sparring and he's doing the whole chopsticks and bowl trick, that was just incredible. I mean, he's flipping the bowl around. He's you know holding it up. He he'd roll it over his head and then grab it on the backside and. And just not break it. And I wonder if in, you know, in rehearsals or whatever, when they were shooting, how many he may did actually break or was he that good that? Well, I just looking, looking at uh, how they react, because there's always this slight pause after every movement that they make, you know, just the way that they're like, okay, they both reach and then they pull it in and it's, the same as dance choreography when you're doing fight choreography. The only scene that I know for sure wasn't like that was there was a scene in a Donnie Yen film and the name escapes me where he and the guy he was supposed to go up against were having a contest because they weren't sure how the movie was going to end, but they had a contest to see who was going to hit the other one first and so they just let them go. Like, it wasn't choreographed. It was just, see if you can hit me, and I'll see if I can hit you. And they just went <laughs> with it. And it was one of wow. the most brilliant scenes. And you can tell the difference between that and a choreographed fight scene. Because there's very right. deliberate movements. It's like, okay, I'm, you know, punching up, but then I'm, reaching down with both hands, grabbing this stool, lifting it back up. Like, you can tell that's a rehearsed movement that they did over and over again. You know, you're not right, relying right, specifically yeah. on muscle memory. You're relying on, you know, this is a rehearsed Corey movement, Corey. and you can tell by the way that they yeah. move. It's not as fluid. It's slightly stiffer. Yeah. But it still looks amazing. Right, right. There's always little moments where you can catch it, like... When someone's coming up behind another character and swinging a sword at him, and that character is not looking at him, but he manages to duck and then turn around and hit back or something, it's like the the little stretches here and there. That's obviously that's choreographed because it's like boom, 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 sword. Whew, he ducked, you know, and but he couldn't have possibly seen it. Right. 
but it just lends the that character the like this air of mystery. Right. That they have the supernatural senses or whatever. Um one thing I really liked in this movie was the music. It it kind of reminded me of uh Toccata and Fugue in D minor that mm. Yeah, the Dracula music. Yeah. So it was just I felt the music was very sinister in this film, which we hadn't really I don't think in the ones we've done so far, we've heard that kind of music, you know? No, definitely not. But again, um, you know, where we had uh, Wu Fang being just, you know, the most ruthless character with no humor, no, you know, levity to him at all, which like, you know, like we said, even in some of the other films, like, you know, it's like, okay, he's the bad guy, but like, you never really felt like, you know, he was cold and remorseless. Like, he just felt like a bad guy. Right. Yeah, he was just... It, 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 he was. They showcased him and um, all the other guys in that opening sequence that you mentioned. At first, the first time... Because I, I watched this twice, and um, the first time I watched it, I, I guess I wasn't... Ha- I was only half paying attention because it was the opening credits. So I kind of missed, you know, where they were, who was being killed and all that. And I went back and watched it again. And, um... I looked up some historical stuff on it, too, because I guess um, Monk Sanday was a real guy in real life, and he was killed while defending... He was defending Zichan Shaolin, the Shaolin temple that he established after the burning of a temple called Julian Shaolin. So he was a real dude. He got killed off in the movie. And um, the Ten Tigers of Shaolin, except for Sanday, they weren't Shaolin monks. Shaolin trained fighters who are loyal to the temple. So I guess this is often misinterpreted in many of these Chinese Kung Fu films that the Shaolin fighters battling with the various Qing and Wu Tans are, are Shaolin priests or monks, but they're not. They're just uh, trained fighters. Yeah, and another, uh, obviously another uh, very obvious influence, Pai Mei, once again. Uh, yes, or White Brows, as they call them here. Who is featured heavily in the Kill Bill series. Right. You know, played by, in this case, Gordon Liu in uh, Tarantino's films. But it's like, you know, obviously, you know, Tarantino liked the look of the character and liked, you know, who he was. Changed things around a little bit, you know, and I think he was a member of the White Lotus clan as opposed to the White Brows. And I will say White Lotus sounds way cooler than White Brows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, see, see, I saw that on the subtitle. It said that that was his name. Yeah, there was there was something at one point where they said that there was uh, they were trying to add more to the White Brow Clan or something. Like I, it may have been oh, okay something that got lost in translation. But yeah, because there were a few times that it was just like you know I would read the subtitle and I'd be like, okay, that's probably not what he said, but that's a close approximation. So I'd kind of you know, make my own my own dialogue based on because it's like that dialogue felt a little stilted. But if you yeah, just kind of look, oh, it's it's weird the way I'm putting it, but like look a little bit to the left of what he was saying, you know, then you'll yeah, get yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, boss, I quit now. It's like, wait, what? Like, you know, it's that's probably not exactly what he said. It was probably like, oh, you know what, I quit. You know, so it's close. Yeah. But not quite the same. So you're able to kind of get a little different different feel of the dialogue based on you know the, the idiosyncrasies of 
you know, uh, English and Americanized uh, speech from the Chinese translation. Right, right. Yeah, I'd love to see a dub of this. So I have to, you know, an English dub. I would I think that would be um, interesting to watch. It's very funny to watch sometimes because, as we've said before, the the subtitles and the and the dub voices are often different, uh, conveying the same meaning. But sometimes with dubs, they manage to make it in a more colloquial English way that makes more sense to us. You know. Yeah, yeah. It it, uh, and you also got to remember the the way people would talk in different time periods. Like you know, the way somebody would talk in you know 1975 is not the way someone would talk in 1995. You know, you have the different right, slang definitely. and different, you know, idioms that kind of come and go throughout uh, their, uh, you know, no, just the cultural zeitgeist. That's groovy, man. Yeah, right? Like, when's the last time you heard someone outside of Bruce Campbell say that? I, I use it often. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I loved in this movie was where, first of all, Jin and Young or Ying are constantly torturing their bosses, and Jin's got this... This setup where in the threshold of the doorway on the floor, there's a piece of wood that spans it, you know, all the way across. And he's got it attached to like a string or a small rope. And every time the boss goes to leave, you know, Jin's on the other side of the of the the store, whatever, for lack of a better term. And he pulls it and it trips the guy <laughs> and he can't the guy can't figure out why he's always tripping over it. Yeah. And like the, the second time we see him do it, he like specifically stops and waits and he's like getting ready. Yeah. And he still trips over it. <laughs> now, I'm curious to see what yours said on the translation because on that one, the second one, he looks at it and says, "I must find a monk for a ceremony." And that, that made absolutely no sense to me. <laughs> yeah, it was something similar to that. It's like I I I think he was like, "Oh, it, it, no, he said something about a priest for mine." And I think it was, you know, like, I need to perform an exorcism or I need to get this, you know, place blessed or whatever. Because, oh. like, it's... Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, like, I think that's what he was, was, he was, what he was implying. Because he looked down and everything was fine. Then as soon as he went to step, he tripped over it. It's like, how do you not notice right. the twine tied, like, intricately across? <laughs> like, <laughs> and, you know, your employee, every time he stands in that one place, you trip over the thing leaving. I mean, they were kind of mean to him. Like, at one point, they took him and threw him out of the restaurant through the wall. Oh, yeah, the restaurant manager, yeah. Because <laughs> he was pissed that they smashed all the tables, even though he told them to fight because those guys were going to steal his chef. <laughs> yeah, it's like, there was that one that one part where he kept uh, he like kept telling the guy to put his head on the table. Right. And he finally just smashed him right through. Like, that was a fun fight scene. That that I liked a lot. Oh yeah, yeah that was good. Yeah that's that's the one where he's beating up Malfoy with the napkin. Yes, and then uh, whatever. Then uh, they throw him through the wall. Yeah, and then they throw the boss through the wall. I mean, it was hilarious though when they earlier when they sparred and they broke all the stools in the place, like every single one of them, because uh, what's his name, the student there, managed to flip them all over so he could walk across them like he does on the on the poles. And, you know, a fellow Quack gets the idea, well, you know, we can't do that. So he smashes all the stools. And then the next day or however many hours later, the restaurant's open and everyone's sitting down, all the customers, and all the stools just start breaking underneath them. 
<laughs> yeah, because they used them for sparring practice earlier, and they kept running on all the uh, things to to mimic the uh, the Big Dipper thing. Right, but then then Philip Quack got fed up with that, and he smashed them all. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, so they must have just not even nailed them together. They just stuck them together and put them back up. Yeah, it just made them look nice. It's like, oh. <laughs> then Philip Quack does that thing where the boss is like, all these chairs are broken. And he goes, no, they're not. And he sits down, but he does that trick you can do where you don't actually sit. It's like your legs are holding you up, but you look like you're in a seated position. It's um, like horse stance, I think is what it's what it's called. Um, yeah, where you're you're in that <laughs> that low position, but you don't quite, you know, make it there. And he's just he's just at the right angle where it looks like he's sitting on the chair, and then he gets up and walks away, and the boss is like, "Hmm," he sits on it, and of course it crashes underneath him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh man, there's so many so many funny things in this movie, as well as like shocking things. Like, oh man, in that end fight where one guy, um, I think it was Tiger gets his leg just like totally pushed up in a position that it's not supposed to go in. Yeah. Uh that's at the very end. And then he uses the pole to snap his neck. Yeah. Oh. I was like, that dude's gotta be really flexible because that is an uncomfortable compromising position. I think I think that was a fake leg. I think his r- real leg, like his lower half was under the floor. Honestly because there's no way that I, I yeah. <sighs> I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised because some of these guys, like how limber they are and how how much they stretch, and and it wouldn't surprise me if it was actually his right. leg. It could be, yeah. I mean, one way or the other, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me. Oh man, that was just that was just so brutal. I, I was that, that I was kind of like I had a. Um back away from that for a little bit. <laughs> I was like, and I don't mind gore films, but that was just... <laughs> yeah, as someone who's had multiple knee and leg injuries, like, ugh, I don't I don't like that. I'm not a, yeah. not a fan of those types of, of things. It's definitely tough to watch. I was waiting for someone on the Big Dipper poles to fall and hit their crotch on one of the poles. <laughs> Speaking of crotch. Yeah, right? Oh, that's, you know, apparently the one way to defeat a, a martial arts master. Yeah. <laughs> poke, poke him in the eyes or kick him in the crotch. Like one of those two. <laughs> kick him in the nards. Kick him in the nards. You know what's funny? There's a documentary, for people who aren't aware, there yep. is a documentary about the fan base of the Monster Squad called Wolfman's Got Nards. And it is absolutely amazing. And we interviewed Andre Gower, who played Sean, and it uh, was one of the best documentaries I watched in all of 2020. And I highly recommend it to anybody who is a fan of that movie. Is that on Netflix? I don't believe so. I know it's on Amazon, but I can... I can oh, Amazon. Okay. Um, well, it's you can buy the Blu-ray on Amazon. Oh, okay. Yeah, and your interview with him was really good. That was an enjoyable episode. Yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, it looks like you can rent it pretty much anywhere for three ninety nine. Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, all that stuff. But I recommend owning it because if you're a fan like I was, like I got emotional several times, especially when they talk about uh, the kid who played Horace, right? Uh, Brett, Brent, Brent, not Brett, Brent. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. He's check that one out. But yeah, apparently the uh, the same tactic you can use to defeat a uh, or temporarily defeat a werewolf is the same uh, tactic you can use to uh, 
utterly destroy a uh, martial arts master. Although I suppose it, you know, kicking is different than you know, sword him in the nads. <laughs> like that's stab him in the nards. <laughs> yeah, slightly, slightly more effective. <laughs> You know, one scene that I thought was really impressive was where, um, what's his name, Queen Young? I'm sorry, no, Gao kills all the men at the Queen Young Temple. And, yes. um, you know, they catch up to Hong because he escaped. And, but just before that, he meets up with his friend. And then the, the friend's like, all right, you go, I'll hold them off. And that fight was really good because that one guy went up against all those bad guys. And even though he lost, he put up a damn good fight for quite a while. Yeah, until he got forked. Right. Like that was his that was his downfall. It's like, oh, really? All of this stuff and a a fork is what takes you down? That's right. He's the one. I misspoke earlier. I said it was Philip Quack's character, but yeah, you know, he got the fork. Well, <laughs> he got they, forked. <laughs> Philip Quack did too. Like, you know, throwing oh, okay. the All right. when they he threw the uh the forks up in the air and then they came down and like somehow embedded themselves. Like that I didn't get. Right, right, right. But yeah, but that fight was really. I would. I was surprised. Just one guy going to get uh, going up against all them bad guys that he lasted as long as he did. Yeah, it was very impressive. You know, and one thing about the end fight that was really cool was the fact that they kept trading off opponents, which kept yeah. it interesting. See, I like when they do that because it lets you. It's not just like okay, my style against your style. It's suddenly like oh, now I have a different like. It's this style against that style, and you know this against that and you know this weapon against that weapon and it's like oh this is so cool like you get to see such a range of of uh different choreographies sort of you know intermingling and giving you a, and that fight scene that final fight scene goes on for like 20 minutes and like oh yeah you know we've talked about this in the past in order to do like a fight scene like this it's going to take you a long time like you're going to be very tired by the end of it oh absolutely i mean it must have been shot over days because it was so complicated oh yeah and you know you at you know the final like the the, the climax to it where you have lu fang fighting all four of them and like the way they finally yeah. stop them you know what it reminded yeah. me of again you know i've i've said this a hundred times the final uh not the final but the confrontation on titan in avengers infinity war or like, oh, you know, yeah. it's like, okay, I, you know, I'm holding you down with, you know, this and uh, Spider-Man's webbed your arm. And, you know, like you've got, you know, a bunch of, you know, everybody kind of combining to finally defeat this guy. Like you had, yeah, and his, his, his ponytail was being, you know, stuck to the, the pole and then they shoved the table in front of him and like, ah, like they pinned him down. It was just, it was glorious to see. Yeah, because Han had put his foot up against the ponytail, holding it to the pole. Yes. And it was just a great... I would love a screenshot of that. That was just a great... Once they had all combined and closed in on him and finished him off, they were all in, like, cool poses doing it, you know? Yeah, and they rammed the trident through him from behind, so it had to go through yeah. the through the wood, uh, like, stanchion that was behind him, uh, the, the right. wooden beam there, the support. And then they jabbed him in the front just for good measure yeah and i love that but before prior to the fight the night before um hung basically fills them in on what all the bad guys uh, for lack of a better word powers are like what all their skills are like you know the one guy with the giant pumpkin weapon and then um the other guy with the sword that would fake you out because his shield was a bamboo shield so he would just stab you right through his own shield which he did at the beginning to the uh 
to the monk. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's very similar to, you know, to what they were saying about, you know, the guys was like, "All right, kick him in the crotch." That's how we defeat him. Like right. <laughs> because they had, you know, studied their opponent's weaknesses and, you know, that's how they base their attacks. Right. Cuz I like that going into that fight knowing all those things because then like, for example, um Philip Quark's fighting the the sword guy and he's using a stool to defend himself because he knows what the guy can do. And he still, of course, pierced through the stool, like through his shield and then through the stool. But that was, I think, to his disadvantage because that's how he disarmed him and finished him off. Yeah. I think, if I'm remembering that right. Yeah. So I thought it was cool, too, when they used, um, Hung was teaching them to use their chi again the night before where they're hiding and there's these, like, wooden containers at the base of the wall that they're hiding behind. And he just, he teaches them to each just sort of touch it and use their chi and you can hear the wood cracking so you knew exactly what was going to happen that if somebody jumped over that wall they'd go right through the wood and of course that did happen but then boing they went right back up again yeah it's like how did you bounce back up from that (laughs) that was a a very smart burglar alarm i guess you know or or intruder alert yeah that's true you know and i I was gonna say too that the, the hole that the guy fell through like just one foot went through but it would it was small enough that his foot would get stuck it wouldn't be so easy to just boing right out of there you know well shows what you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah I thought he was gonna get stuck too I thought that was the whole point yeah exactly but I guess not like they were just like nope I know we're jumping all over here, but speaking of Boeing, there was a scene earlier, which I forget, I think it might have been Malfoy's character, where Philip Quack was, like, flicking lint off his shoulder, and it was making this boing, boing sound effect. Oh, I thought you were going to mention when he was jumping on the tables like a trampoline, like you just saw right. bouncing. <laughs> like, that is not how a table works. It was so obvious that there was a trampoline just below camera level, you know? But it was a fun scene. Oh, yeah. They were all so good. I love Chiang Shang's um, fighting, especially in that end battle, though. He was just all over the place, just moving. He's so fast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really impressive, like, you know, what, what he was able to do. Like, I just, I love watching these movies. I love their fight scenes so much. Yeah. So, I think we've covered a good majority of it. Um, final thoughts on the Shaolin Rescuers. Well, I'm going to say... That, uh, again, I, I highly recommend this one. I think of the, the ones that I've watched so far, because the only ones I've ever seen are the ones that I've been watching for the show, and I'm trying not to uh, influence myself with any other films, and I don't watch the uh, the trailers for these either. I think this one has uh, my favorite fight scenes, uh, the best choreography. It's tough to say, like, the most fun characters, but I definitely really liked uh, the dynamic uh, between the, uh, the the main guys there, and it it's just so much fun, so much fun watching them spar, and then you know uh, eventually you know fulfill their prophecy that they wanted. Like, oh, I'd rather get beheaded than you know serve tofu every day for the rest of my life. Like, right? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I, I you know, as, as anyone in a who's who's worked a retail job for any you know significant length of time, uh, yeah, I feel you, dude. Uh, <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree every, with everything you said. It was just so much fun. It was so entertaining. And I, I do the same thing. I don't watch the trailers. I, I haven't I hadn't seen it before, so I really didn't know what to expect. And I'm just glad it was way, way less convoluted than the last movie. I mean, in fact, I don't even think this movie was convoluted at all. 
it was fairly easy to follow. Whereas, you know, Life Gamble, it was, you needed a, I don't know, a, a, the book to help you figure out what the heck was going on there. Yeah, but it was. This was just so much fun. Yeah, it was, uh, it was tough. It was, yeah. uh, <laughs> but again, we, uh, we were able to, to get through that. Yeah. Yeah. And come out on the other side with Shaolin rescuers, which again, it shows Chang Che's ability to change things up. He, I don't think any two of his movies are the same. Yeah. I, I, there are definitely some similarities. Like we, you know, we talked about with this, um, there were a few, like the ending was definitely very similar to the other Shaolin film. Um, right. But, you know, because, you know, these guys take turns, who's going to be the hero, who's going to be the villain, you know, who's going to be the super badass, you know, who's going to die, who's going to live. I just, I love the way that, you know, he, he directs his films. And that that's one thing I forgot to say I wanted to mention about when when you walked into the um, the final fight there. Again, and I think I said this before on, on one of the previous episodes, is you don't know with these movies who's going to live and who's going to die. So there's real tension. When you're watching it for the first time, you have absolutely no idea. In fact, when Philip Clark got hit and the, for the first time in that end battle, I l- literally went, no, out loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just, you never know who's, who's going to make it. And, you know, like you said, it, it does really raise the stakes because, you know, you, you try not to, you know, you're going to get attached to these characters because they're so charismatic and likable. And then, you know, one of them gets killed off halfway through the film or, you know, they, they make it almost <laughs> to the end and they have like this heroic death. And, you know, yeah. even, even if they're, they're, they've been slashed repeatedly and now they're full of arrows, they're still going to go out in a blaze of glory. Right. <laughs> And the, then the end. <laughs> yep. That, yep. That's one thing that Chang Shea should have worked on was his endings. He never really, he, they just, they're done. That's all I'm telling you of the story. Yeah, it's very, very rarely is it completely, completely satisfying. Yeah. You know, and here's another thing. I, I apologize. I, I meant to mention this at the beginning, but um, what exactly, so... Was it basically the Wu Tang were part of the Qing government, and they were just trying to wipe out the Shaolin? Is that what the story was? Because I couldn't understand why Hung was on the run. What did he do? Because they kept saying, "Oh, the court's coming after you." And I was like, "Well, what did he do?" They didn't really specify, except the fact that he survived the fight at the beginning. I I I couldn't really tell. For me, it just looked like. You know, warring factions. You know, like we generally see in these. Yeah, I, I, I didn't see any, or I couldn't, I couldn't see anything that I was like, okay, this is definitely what's going on. Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. So, all right, folks. Well, that was Shaolin Rescuers from 1979, and uh, we hope you get a chance to check it out. And some of these movies are a little hard to find, but other ones are not so much. So next, uh, well, first we're going to take a break, and then next when we come back, we're going to discuss the Spaghetti Western God Forgives, I Don't, from 1967, starring Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. We come from the retro future. We want you to be nostalgic for what's to come. A new channel and distribution network for smart people with bad taste, featuring content from Church of the Subgenius, Creature Features, 
Cinema, Insomnia, Sleazy P. Martini, and Guar, Troma, Corey Maccabee, Horror, Sci-Fi, Saturday Morning Cartoons, Midnight Movies, and Assorted Trash We Love. Add our channel, OSI 74, to your Roku player or visit OSI74.com. All systems go. Hey, cats and kittens, do you remember the 50s jukeboxes, hot rods, malt shops, and sock hops? No, not really. Oh, well, do you remember that TV show Happy Days? You know, Fonzie and Richie and all like that? A, sit on it, etc.? Kind of. Then join us for These Days Are Ours, a Happy Days podcast where we watch every episode and give you the lowdown on what it all means. Find us at thesedaysareours.libsyn.com and follow us on Twitter at Fonzie Podcast. Be there or be square. You're sure you don't remember Sock Hops? Sorry, no. Okay, then. You won't get away with it in the long run. Even if you're a lot faster than me, my man will make you pay. And there's an awful lot of them, pretty face. You never saw him before? Never. Ain't often you meet a type like that. So, you know him, huh? Yeah, I think so. He's the one I'm looking for. A week ago, the MKNT train was by. $100,000 in gold. How many people do you know capable of pulling such a thing off? Bill. Our fancy friend Bill San Antonio. Since when have dead men started going around robbing trains? I ain't saying I know how things went with you two a year ago, Cat. But one thing's sure, Bill's alive. Why are you so interested in this business? The Herald Bank took out a policy for the whole amount against its safe arrival. I work for the insurance company. You haven't changed a bit, you old jackass. Be quiet, Rose. No one's going to cut your throat. I just want to get a piece of information. How do you like that? Here I was thinking you'd come for me. I asked you a question. And you got my answer. Do you know what I think, dead man? He's gonna be mighty sorry he isn't dead. This is no time to rest. Come on, get up. All right, so we are now discussing uh, God Forgives, I Don't, the 1967 Spaghetti Western, uh, directed and written by Giuseppe Colizzi. Uh, this is the first in a trilogy, which is uh, followed by Ace High and Boot Hill. Now, first thing I want to do is, I uh, on the poster, the uh, names above the uh, actors are swapped, and uh, I will say Terrence Hill, uh, the way they painted him or put him in this picture, he's got really wide eyes. Like, he's very surprised about something. <laughs> um, looking at this poster, uh, we see Bud Spencer and, and Terrence Hill. And it almost looks like 
Bud Spencer, like he's exerting himself greatly. So it's almost like he just took a shit on the ground and, and Terrence Hill is responding to that. Like the way their faces are on this, on this poster. I mean, look at that poster and look at their facial expressions and tell me I'm wrong. (laughs) I have to look that up. I don't think I saw it. But fortunately that does not happen in this movie. But what does happen is uh, the story begins with a train coming into town and everybody waiting at the train station for the train. They're all excited. And the train doesn't slow down the way it's supposed to. And it keeps going and crashes into uh, the, you know, the wooden uh, fencing to, you know, stop a runaway train. Although they're lucky the train had been slowing down because, you know, you're looking at half a million tons of steel like it's not going to slow down uh you know because someone put up a little wood barrier at the end <laughs> but they go in and everyone on the train is dead except one person who identifies Bill San Antonio even though Bill San Antonio is supposed to be dead now Bill San Antonio is uh played by Frank Wolf. Terrence Hill plays Cat Cat Stevens, which is a fun name there. Uh, also known as Pretty Face. Uh, that's how Bill San Antonio refers to him. And he refers to Bill San Antonio as Dead Man because he had killed him in a duel, or so he thought. Uh, Bud Spencer is Hutch Jackass Bessie. Uh, and these are the first few characters we're really introduced to. So, during a card game, Bill San Antonio accuses his old friend and partner Cat of cheating at cards. So, he goes on to this long diatribe of, like, the type of funeral he would want, and, you know, back and forth about, you know, you could tell he's he's laughing and joking, but he's got a very menacing air to him. So, they decide to have a duel Bill orders all his men out except for his uh, lieutenant and right-hand man, Bud. Bud gives a gun to Cat. They have their duel. Bill is shot and killed, seemingly. So they are told that no matter what happens, whoever dies, set fire to this place and burn everything. So when they learn that Bill San Antonio may not be dead, you know they hearken back to this. So, Cat is told by Hutch, who is an old uh, acquaintance of his, who is now an insurance agent, that the train, in addition to having everyone killed, was also robbed. And there was $100,000 worth of gold on that train, which, again, is like, you know, $30 million. No, what would we say? Uh, 50000 was what? Uh, 1.2 $1. $1. $1. $1. $1. $1. $1. million. Yeah. So, we're looking at, like, double that, obviously. Right. Um, All in gold. So Cat remembers that the gun he used in the duel was handed to him by Bud and has a sneaking suspicion that it might have contained blanks. Uh, He sneaks away at night with Hutch's horse and leaves leaves it a little further down so Hutch can eventually find his horse. Uh, He searches and is followed by Hutch and eventually finds the hideout of Bill's new gang. When sneaking into the house, Cat is caught but saved by Hutch. 
uh, he's caught in a weird trap where he's hung upside down, but he still manages to fight everybody off except for one guy uh, who Hutch then dispatches. Using Hutch's considerable strength, they remove the box with the gold taken from the train and hide it down on the ground by some cliffs. I just want to point out that Cat was kind of a jerk forcing Hutch to uh, <laughs> carry this huge trunk and not helping him at all. Right. Like, such a jerk. Uh, the two have a falling out because Cat wants more than the percentage that was offered by the insurance company. So they shoot a couple of times, and that brings the uh, the attention of... Oh, no, they don't shoot because they're like, oh, if you shoot, they're just going to find us easier. So they have a, uh, a big fight, and Cat, using his uh, cat-like agility... Uh, is able to, you know, land several blows on Hutch, but Hutch hits him once and knocks him out. But that's when he finds out that Bill and his men have arrived. Now, Bill's gang, uh, in order to uh, maintain his secrecy, Bill actually had ridden by somebody, and he's like, oh, you, you shouldn't have looked up, curiosity, you know? And he shoots the guy dead, because he can't have anyone ruin his his rouge or his... His subterfuge. Right. So when they're stealing the gold, or, yeah, they're stealing the stolen gold and, and hiding it, uh, you find out that Cat can't swim. And uh, now that the two of them have been captured by Bill's gang, they start to uh, torture them using the very same methods that they know both Cat and Hutch can't stand. So Cat, I think he gets it a little worse. Uh, he keeps repeatedly being dropped in a well, uh, only to be lifted up just a little bit, just enough to, uh, you know, they ask him a couple of questions, and he refuses. He actually spits water into Bill's face. But, you know, it's it's classic villain, classic scary villain, because Bill, before he tortures him, gives them a nice meal. You know, and lays out his entire plan of what he's going to do to them, which uh, I thought was a nice touch. So the two are tortured by Bill, uh, knowing what they can't stand because he's familiar with them. Uh, so cat by water and hutch by fire, but they refuse to tell where the gold is. When Bill and most of his gang leave for a short while to meet the secret partner, which we don't get to find out who that is. At least I don't think we do. Uh... Cat suggests to Bud, who had been literally whipped by Bill for being too too conspicuous and blamed the surviving witness at the train blamed for the surviving witness as a train massacre, that he can lead him to the gold. So Cat leads him to the gold. Um, he's like, "Oh, this is where the 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 gold is," and he starts digging it up a little bit. But he had also buried a knife there, and he used the knife to kill Bud, shoot, uh, throwing the knife into his throat before he can uh, shoot him. When Bill returns, uh, he sends his gang to search for Cat. Bill and two of his two bandits find Cat in a cantina at the nearby Mex in the nearby Mexican village. Uh, after his two companions have been shot dead by Cat, Bill, who is being held at gunpoint, suggests that they share the money and forget Hutch. At Bill's lair, the three men that are left there try to get the information from Hutch, but the man aside to guard Hutch refuses to open the door because that's what he was told by Bill. He said, if anybody tries to get in here, you shoot him. And Hutch is able to, using his incredible strength, break the wooden board to which he had been tied. 
he then, you know, annihilates everybody that comes in. Uh, he opens the door, lets him in, grabs the first two guys, smacks their heads together, uh, kills the next guy uh, using another guy as a human shield, and then finally kills the last guy by, like, yelling to him, and he turns around and just gets shot. <laughs> He's like, oh, yay! And the guy turns around and gets shot. It's like, oh, you idiot. <laughs> um, at the place of the gold, so where the gold is buried, I don't like the way that's worded, at the place of the gold. Uh, so where the gold is buried, Cat intends to reproduce his first duel with Bill, but with dynamite instead of fire. So instead of having the fire burning the whole time, uh, he sets he sets a fuse. He lights a fuse with dynamite. Well, the fuse burns away. They move into position to draw, but are interrupted by Hutch, who's holding a rifle and tells them to drop their guns. And he asks about the gold. Cat says the box is there, but the gold might not be there. Uh, he tries to open the box while keeping an eye on the two of them. Fuse is still burning, which I really like. It's like the ticking clock thing. Yeah. Bill draws a hidden Derringer and shoots Hutch, but Cat throws another hidden knife, uh, and the two pick up their revolvers and shoot. But now uh, Bill is uh, having to draw Southpaw because his uh, shooting hand got a knife through it. So Cat... Cat wounds him, shoots uh, shoots his other hand, and shoots both his knees. So he's uh, pretty much crippled. Uh, so Bill's crawling towards the dynamite, tries to bite the fuse off. Uh, Cat carries unconscious Hutch away to uh, to save him because he's Hutch has saved him a couple of times at this point. And then kaboom, no more, no more Bill. Uh, so. At the end, we see uh, Hutch coming to, even though he had been shot. You know, he wasn't... I thought he was dead because of the amount of blood in the back of his head. Right. But uh, what do I know? You know, after watching all these Shaw Brothers films, I shouldn't be surprised. Uh, yeah, he even says, uh, you know, they're lying on the, bag, on the wagon with bags of gold. Cat says he has to have, to have a bullet taken out of his head, but they'll discuss the fate of the gold when he's strong enough to hold a gun. Um and the, the final note on this is a lot of film time is consumed with artistic moving pictures of things like horses galloping in an artistic manner on trails or through water. And uh, yes, uh, this movie probably could have been half an hour shorter without all that. But uh, now, have you seen this one before? I had not. No, this is my first viewing. It was uh, mine as well. And I, I enjoyed it. I thought this was a good film. I thought it was... Um, I thought it was uh, more complex than some of the other movies that we have watched. Yes. Like, like the first half is a little bit convoluted because of the nature of the flashbacks, I thought, anyway. Yeah, I can, I can see where you're coming from on that. But I will say that I liked the, the complexity of the plan where Bill wanted to screw his gang out of, out of the treasure because... You know, being an outlaw, the price on his head, and he says this at the end, the price on his head kept increasing over and over and over. Right. And he was, you know, kind of wary of even his own men turning on him. Yeah. So he decided that uh, if he could fake his own death, which he did very well, like it's very hard to, 
I mean, nowadays it's a little easier, but, you know, in the time frame of this movie, it's very difficult to identify a, a burned body. And the, the coroner even says as much that, you know, he was not, was not 100% sure that this was Bill San Antonio. And I like the fact that his tombstone says St. Antonio. Right. I mean, it's just yeah, a slight, a... just a slight, you know, variation. But right. I, I, I liked that. It's it's weird. It's a weird thing to kind of focus on, but I liked it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they both mean the same thing, but yeah, I see what you're saying. But one, I wanted to answer one of your questions earlier about Bill mentioning his secret partner. Wasn't that the insurance president? Yes. Because when he sat down at the end, he told... Um, yeah, he told a cat that that that's who he was teamed up with. Yeah, he mentioned it, but we never get to see him. Oh, right. Like, yeah, that's, it's just one of those because um, I wasn't, I, I didn't think that we saw him, but I remember him saying that at the end because that's when he was trying to, um, like, hey, let's just us split this because, like, here's how I knew where and when to rob this train and how to do it, and yeah, you know, because I, I'm, I'm in with this guy exactly and the insurance guy was giving him all the information like how to you know bypass whatever security protocols are in place right it's like okay here's what we're going to be doing here's how we're going to do it and here's how to beat it right what i didn't understand at the beginning was when the train comes in and it comes to a stop how did it do that if everybody was dead my guess is the only way it came to a stop is because there was no more coal feeding the fire and it just happened because oh, okay. like you don't need a conductor to keep it on the trains. You need a conductor to make sure that it's maintaining a specific speed, and you know it doesn't go too fast and jump the tra- and jump the rails. But right, right, if you're dead, like no one's feeding the no one's feeding the engine, so it's just gonna go until it coasts. It's like because even when the engine stops, like the the coal fires go out, the momentum because of so much weight behind the engine uh it's just going to keep going for a while right right i mean it still managed to smash through the the safety barrier right my other question is the guy the one guy who survived why did he get up and bolt you would think he would i mean maybe he just didn't know he was at the train station but i was just like dude you're there you know you can go get the cops or you know law enforcement to help you (laughs) my guess would be utter shock and just you know, the, the the trauma of having gone through this experience where he was shot, you know, and he watched yeah. everyone else die around him. I think that that's kind of, you know, he was hysterical and in shock. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I liked it, too. I I didn't know what to expect going into it. I, I, I guess from just stuff that I had heard over the years, I thought it was going to be a lot funnier than it was. And it really... Was had some comedy in it, but not a lot, which was fine by me. It worked great. I thought, look, the copy that I watched had a lot of uh, scratches on it and grain, and that to me added to it. It made gave it that grindhouse feel. It wasn't even widescreen, which I think it could have would have served it a little bit better because there were some stuff, some shots where you could tell things were off camera that you should be seeing. But it gave it that grindhouse feel, like when we watched Death Rides a Horse, where it it didn't really matter. It, the, the story was good enough that. It was it was enjoyable to watch. Yeah, yeah, I thought it it, it uh, I thought it worked, and I thought it worked well. Yeah, there was attempt at comedy, 
but you know most of the you know quote unquote jokes were being delivered by Bill San Antonio and it was just basically him laughing at his own <laughs> jokes and telling people not to laugh right because uh, he's the only one who's allowed to laugh you know it was stuff that he found funny but I, I didn't think that it was anything that I would look at and be like oh yeah this is clearly played for laughs this is clearly you know humorous because there was a, an overall serious tone to the film for the most part right uh, i mean there were a few like little like digs at guys but it wasn't like good-natured or well-meaning it was like you know when he kept uh calling bud an imbecile and beating him with the riding crop right <laughs> But then the whole joke thing came full circle because at the end, when um, Cat and and Bill are facing off, and Cat um, says, "Oh, the the gold may or may not be in the chest," and um, you know, and Bill reacts to that, and he goes, "Oh, what you like a good joke, you know?" Yeah. <laughs> but I thought a lot of the the good humorous moments came from the the good chemistry between Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. I think their characters. I mean, this was the first time they'd been teamed together. And their chemistry was so good that they ended up going on to make a whole bunch of films together. You know, there's another trilogy that I, I we're going to check out after this one. It's called the Trinity Trilogy, and it's got three movies. They Call Me Trinity, Trinity Still My Name, and Man of the East. And I think those ones are supposed to be more humorous in nature. But it's just those two guys just were really funny together. Yeah, I, I agree with you. They definitely had some uh, some good chemistry and. You know, I thought this one, uh, this was one of the better ones. And again, you know, just like Shaolin Rescuers, this was, I think, the longest uh, of the films that we've watched in this genre. Like this one yeah. was like, an, I think they were both like an hour and 40 minutes, uh, give or take, as opposed to the usual like 60 or 70. You know, yeah. it's, you know, and I've seen a few films that, you know, just barely made their running time, but there's, you know, 35 minutes of actual plot driven stuff, but then another half an hour of like B roll and filler. <laughs> and this one, you know, again, like they, like it said in the synopsis, you know, there is a lot of focus on nice shots and, you know, artistic looking shots, but I don't think it really took away from the film. Like, you know, certain ones you'll see, like, it's like, okay, this is what we're doing. This is, you know, you know, integral to the plot and then we'll cut away for five minutes and just show like a waterfall and nature yeah. scenes. And it's like, what are we watching <laughs> and why is this even here? Like it, it makes the movie feel disjointed and this one didn't have that. Like it, there was nothing that I was like, Oh, okay. You know, this took me right out of the film. You know, everything seemed to drive the plot forward. I felt that a lot of the shots were, were tight shots. There wasn't a lot of, you know, except when they were outside, there weren't a lot of wide, wide shots. You know, like even in the opening when they're at the at the poker table and you don't see half the faces of the guys that are there. Yeah. You know, did you notice that? It was just a lot of, a lot of not really close-ups, but just tight shots. I like, I like the way they do that. But there was one scene, I think it was when they were talking to Bud or Bud was speaking and they zoomed in on his mouth. And it's like, I get why you did this originally, but like knowing that it was going to be translated into English, <laughs> like he's, it's close up. The whole screen is just his mouth and his mouth is moving. And th the way his mouth is moving is not producing the sounds that you're hearing out of the speakers. 
Right. <laughs> and my wife is like, what are we doing here? Like, what is going on? And I'm like, just, <laughs> just don't worry about it. Like, just go with it. Because <laughs> she came in, because I was watching it in, in the Pat Cave, and she came in, <laughs> and she's like, what is going on here? And I'm like, I'm like it's, it's translated from, I mean, it's dubbed from, from Italian. So, and, and this is one of those 50-50 ones where, because I believe everything that Bill said was in English, and everything that Kat said was in English. Right. I'm pretty sure he spoke English. I think he was an American, or at least half American. And, you know, so they were speaking English. I think Terrence Hill was speaking English at certain points. Yeah. Well, like, certain times, like, these guys are absolutely speaking Italian. Yeah. Yeah, it was, so it was interesting. So we've got the director, Giuseppe Colizzi. He died of a heart attack at age 53 and 79. Um, but this movie is considered one of his best films because he does, as we said, he takes the, the, the material very seriously. And, you know, the characters are m- multidimensional characters. Um, and, and the plot line is pretty intelligent, too. So I think um, this worked for him. Yeah, I agree. And so let's get into the casting because we've kind of mentioned them. Terrence Hill plays... Cat, Pretty Face Stevens, which that reminds me of Angel Face from Ringo. <laughs> yeah, I I even mentioned that. I'm like, yeah, that guy's name is Pretty Face. And in the other movies, the guy was Angel Face. And it's like... Yeah, that's right. You did. <laughs> I'm like, oh, so he, they're uh, they're good with their with their nip, nicknames. It's like, what do you look like? Oh, that's Horse Face. And that's Mule Face. And that's Angel Face. <laughs> butt that's face. Pretty Face and Ugly Face. And that guy, he, uh, he was... He was brewing up his own moonshine, and the still exploded. That's no face. <laughs> they sound like Dick Tracy villains. <laughs> yeah, and the, or Batman. You got Two Face. Oh, that's true. Yeah, Clay Face. Yeah. What was that? Was it? Was the Dick Tracy one? Little Face. Yeah. Yeah. Prune Face. Yeah. Prune Face Tracy. and Little Face and No Face. <laughs> oh yeah. It's. I mean, I get why Frank Wolf, uh, as as. Bill San Antonio is called Dead Man over and over again, but he's only called Dead Man by Terrence Hill, right? You know, and it it makes perfect sense because why wouldn't that be his uh, his name? Well, you know, and, like, and Cat's only called Pretty Face by Bill because Bill is being derogatory when he says that to him. Yeah, like they're definitely uh, there's definitely some tension there, and uh, they don't like each other much. They might even have like a grudging respect for each other, yeah. But they certainly don't trust or like each other. No, and I don't think Cat was very trustworthy at all to begin with. <laughs> yeah, he was I, a good guy. But... See, I I didn't see him as a good guy. I didn't see him as like I didn't see anybody like this is who I'm rooting for in this movie. Like, they're all pretty awful. Like, like I don't feel like there's a specific hero like there's definitely a bad guy and that's bill san antonio we get to see him do bad things yeah but like cat does some bad stuff he kills a lot of people and like he even sends that one guy to his death like i don't you know he's like hey go tell bill san antonio this oh yeah oh okay <laughs> and he's like oh yeah that guy told me to blam you're dead it's like where'd you get that horse Ah, uh, this guy gave it to me. He said, I have to see Bud. Bud's in charge, right? It's like, oh, Bud's in charge. Blam. Oh, and to uh, 
to continue on with the uh, the character's name, uh, Jose Tehran was Flatface. Ah, there you go. So <laughs> I just noticed that. It's like uh, some of so these, uh, some of these are uh, these are fun. Like Frank Branya as Lou, smoking player with mustache. And right. Bruno Arie as older poker player with no mustache. Yeah. <laughs> Roberto Alessandri as poker player with mustache on cat's right. Giancarlo <laughs> Bastianoni as poker player on cat's left with no mustache. It's like, <laughs> wow, the depth of character development for these uh, for these background guys are right are unrivaled. Oh, they're just NPCs. Who cares? <laughs> It's like, oh, who are you? I am the man with no mustache. <laughs> Unless it's been a couple I, days and I haven't shaved, then I am the man with a slight mustache. I am man with just mustache on the left. <laughs> what if you move? Oh, then uh, I can't. That's my signature. I'm always on his left with no mustache. So so let's get back to here. Terrence Hill, he was born Mario Girotti. On the 29th of March in 1939, he's an Italian-American actor, film director, screenwriter, and film producer. He uh, he started his childhood. I'm sorry, he started his career as an actor as a child actor, and um, basically, you know, gained roles in action and comedy films. And obviously, he got together with Bud Spencer in this one, and they kind of teamed up for quite a few movies. The They Call Me Trinity is one of his most famous ones that he did and he did um the sequel to Django which was uh, Django Prepare a Coffin in 68 and it was kind of interesting about that because the um Sergio I think it was Sergio Leone or no Sergio Cobucci I think who did Django recommended Terrence Hill to this guy this director here whose name escapes me um to be to play in this movie so that was kind of an interesting Colizzi. thing how it kind of goes back and forth you know Giuseppe Giuseppe Colizzi. Colizzi, that's right. I couldn't I couldn't remember his name. But um, basically, him and uh, Bud Spencer, with their original names, they were asked to change their names to appeal to an international audience. And I thought this was interesting because Girotti was given a list of names to choose from, and he picked Terence Hill because T.H. were his mother's initials. His mother was Hildegard Thiem. So that's why he picked Terence Hill, and he's still called Terence Hill to this day. So kind of like, uh, kinda like uh, Scott Mary. From the uh, from the last one, yeah, <laughs> taking your mother's name. Yeah. So then, Bud Spencer plays Hutch, as you mentioned, Hutch Jackass Bessie. His original name was Carlo Pedrosoli, and um, you know he and him and uh, Terrence Hill both acted in a movie called Hannibal about the guy that you know uh, grabbed the elephants and had an army of elephants go across the the mountains to attack Rome. Yep. Uh, that movie was in 59, but they never actually met on the set there. And, hmm. you know, he was six foot four, known for his height. He was born on Halloween, October 31st of 1929. And this guy had a pretty interesting background. He was a swimming champion in his youth. He got his law degree. He had several patents. And then towards the end of his life, he dabbled in politics. But he took the reason he took the name Bud Spencer was because Spencer Tracy was one of his favorite actors, and he happened to be holding his favorite drink, a Budweiser. So, well, you know, funny story that's kind of connected. My brother's middle name is Spencer because my mother's favorite actor is Spencer Tracy. 
Well, it's funny that you said that because I was going to say my son's name is Spencer because of Spencer Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how it's all connected. Yeah, six degrees of Spencer Tracy. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh my God! So Frank Wolf, who plays Bill Deadman San Antonio, he um, he worked in a bunch of Roger Corman films early on, and so I think he was American. Yeah, and then he traveled to Europe. Um, to find success because he wasn't really getting anything here, but he did get some success in Italy. And uh, he was in a movie called Salvatore Giuliano in 62. And um, he became a major star in the spaghetti westerns. He was in, uh, he played Brett McBain, the friendly farmer, in Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West in 68, which we will get to at some point. He's also in another movie that we have to cover at some point, uh, Sergio Corbucci's The Great Silence. That is one of the best spaghetti westerns of all time. And um, then he started to, you know, he was in a couple of giallo films like Duccio Tessari's Death Occurred Last Night. And uh, he he was in um, Caliber 9, which is a Poliziotechi movie. It's an Italian cop film. And um, sadly, though, uh, Frank Wolf suffered Great Depression and killed himself in the Hilton Hotel in Rome in December of 71. So it's kind of sad when we follow these actors and find out what their tragic ending was, you know? Yeah, it's it's always, you know, tough to look back on these guys and it's like, man, like that's such a, you know, like we were saying earlier um, about... Uh, Chang Chang. Yeah. Like that's that's too bad. Like, you know, there's there's so many, you know, folks who achieve stardom uh and it just affects them differently. Like some people are able to deal with it and not have uh, any adverse effects on their lives and other folks uh just takes them down a dark path because they meet up with the wrong people and the the wrong the wrong crowd and they get the wrong advice and you know they're like oh this person's my friend why would they steer me wrong and you know next thing you know they're broke and yeah you know they they have nothing left and you know they end up ODing or you know something terrible happens to them yeah yeah so on a happier note this movie was spoofed uh, by a goofy film called. Chichio forgives, I don't, <laughs> which was made a year later in 68. And it's basically the same plot. It's just like a real silly version of this movie. So that, that would be interesting to check out at some point. <laughs> I can't imagine it. but I dig it. <laughs> there was a guy named, an actor named Peter Martel, who was originally supposed to play Cat. But the rumor is he either, well, the official story is he broke a toe when he kicked the leg of a chair. But according to some people, he broke his leg when he fell from the stairs of the Spanish motel after his wife slapped him in the face because he'd screwed the makeup artist. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was going to say, you know, breaking your toe and, and not being able to uh, to continue on in your, your, uh, your specific profession, I will say uh, the the two extremes of that um Viggo Mortensen when he kicked the helmet in the uh the scene in uh the two towers I believe it was when he was worried that the hobbits were dead he kicked the helmet and he screams he broke his toe that's why he screamed oh uh Peter Jackson liked it so much he kept it in because he thought it was like this real anguished cry (laughs) uh, that fit the scene perfectly on the other side 
uh, Jack Daniels uh, of the whiskey fame uh, broke his toe kicking his safe because he couldn't remember the combination, probably because oh, he was geez. drunk, and it got <laughs> infected and he died. Oh, my God. <laughs> what the fuck? So I could see on the one hand, like, oh, I broke my toe. I can't continue. And, you know, the, that's the, – uh, yeah, I mean – if he was screwing around on his wife, you know, like, yeah, like slap him and knock him down the <laughs> stairs. Slap the shit out of him. Yeah, like I'm, I'm fine with that. <laughs> so yeah, so that's when the um, Corbucci directed, I mean, recommended Terrence Hill to him, and the the, the rest is history. Um, which, of course, like I said, he wasn't actually Terrence Hill until. He took on this movie, and then they had him. Him and Bud Spencer changed their names. But the ori- the original title of this film was The Cat, the Dog, and the Wolf. That's what the writer wanted to call it, because he kind of made it like an Aesop's fable kind of tale. You know, because you've got Cat Stevens is like a cat. He's He has feline stealth and agility. Hutch is like a mastiff. You know, he's thick-set, hairy, quick-tempered, and he's like a dog, you know, a bloodhound on the trail of the money. And Bill is like the fox. Like uh, like all of Aesop's wolves, he's intelligent and cunning, but in the end, he just ends up overreaching himself. So, And also, he's played by Frank Wolf. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that weird? <laughs> I think that works. I like it. Yeah. So, and the mo- the movie made, I, I didn't get a chance to look it up, but he made, it made 3 billion lira at the box office that year, making it the fourth highest moneymaker just behind the Dirty Dozen and just ahead of Day of Anger. So I'd be curious to know what three billion lira is in today's dollars. Let's find out. Three billion lira. So uh, $450,000. Wow. That's pretty good. But again, in 1967 money. Yeah. I think it just had a budget of 300000 yeah, yeah. Budget was three hundred thousand dollars. Wow. They, but I, I think that might be today's money. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can't imagine the budget was that much for these this kind of movie. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of it, uh, you know, was outside. I mean, there were a lot of sets, and they did blow up a few things. Getting the train to crash was probably uh, difficult to do. Uh, difficult stunt work. Stunt work, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many cool things about this movie. I just love how the interiors are all, like, everything, everybody's sweaty and every, there's smoke everywhere, you know, it's just, it, it, but then outside it was just so barren, you know, it was an interesting contrast whenever you'd go outside. Yeah, it always, I I liked the scenery, I liked how it always, it was always, like, you know, sunny and always, but, like, the sun kind of felt oppressive in certain scenes. Yeah, you know, like arid. The, the scene, you know, at the end, right before Cat kills Bud, uh, when he's being trekked across the uh, the desert to uh, the hiding place. Yeah, that was so good. Hey, folks! I just wanted to take a minute here to tell you about the hosting service that we use at Haven Podcasts. Podserve.fm. Podcast hosting has never been easier. 
They do all the work to get your podcast on Apple Podcasts and other major podcast networks. They help you navigate the podcasting world, whether you're brand new or have years of experience. Folks, I can't tell you how happy I am with their service. When I first started this podcast, I searched around intensely for the right hosting platform. I found PodServe and used their simple four-step process, and in a short amount of time, my podcasts were on the internet and available through all the major podcast networks. And their customer support is unreal. Every time I goof things up and make a mistake, like uh, posting the wrong show to the wrong feed, I email them, and I kid you not, within minutes I get a response and the problem is resolved. And they're the only podcasting host that actually helps you get listeners. Other podcast hosts stop at Podcast Upload and don't help promote your podcast. Well, PodServe makes sure your podcast is seen by thousands of people. The promotion is free, and they put you on PodParadise.com, which has over 5,000 visits a day from avid podcast listeners and is growing every day. Each day, Pod Paradise selects five podcasts to spotlight on their front page. Maybe yours could be there soon. PodServe's pricing is simple. Only 19 bucks a month. That's it. No tiered pricing platform, just one low fee. For 19 bucks a month, you get unlimited storage, unlimited podcasts, free podcast promotion, your podcasts on all platforms, detailed download analytics, one-on-one customer support. You pay month to month, and you can cancel at any time. And when you sign up, you get 14 days free. You don't even have to give them your credit card. I love their service so much, I put a reminder in my phone to add my credit card when the 14 days was almost up. I couldn't give them my 19 bucks fast enough. I'm telling you, I I really didn't believe it until I actually signed up and saw my podcasts on everything from iTunes to Stitcher and Spotify and more in a ridiculously short amount of time. So if you've got a podcast and you don't have a hosting platform, I highly recommend podserve.fm. Check them out. Hello, this is Rod Barnett. I'm the host of The Bloody Pit, the podcast that examines films from across the decades. On The Bloody Pit, we have several ongoing series of shows within the show focused on specific things in genre cinema that I and my co-hosts find fascinating. There's a long-running series focused on Italian maestro Antonio Margheriti's films from the 1960s all the way up through 1990. There's an on-again, off-again series focused on 1970s science fiction films. There's an in-depth look at the Western movies that William Castle made before he struck out on his own and became the horror auteur that we know and love. A look at the classic Coffin Joe films from Brazil. And our long-term project to look at every universal horror film made in the 1940s. That's a long project, people. It's going to take us a long time. Sprinkled in amongst those are various other episodes focused on other stranger areas of cinema, like uh, Lucio Fulci, Dario Argento, and even some obscure British crime films from time to time. So join me and my rotating crew of co-hosts as we examine the stranger side of cinema through an exploitation lens. Except when we don't? Yeah, you never really know exactly what to expect on The Bloody Pit. So join me for The Bloody Pit. (laughs) 
Did you notice too? There were like a lot of little touches in the movie, like where Cat at the beginning's playing with his cigar, and then later on, the bartender asks Hutch who he's looking for, and he just plays with the cigar in the exact same manner, and he's like, "Oh, I know who you're looking for." Mm-hmm. I thought that was a cool thing without having to be overt with the dialogue, you know. Yeah, and you know, as you know, folks who have listened to this to this show uh, are, are familiar with. I am a big fan of uh, advancing the plot without overly expositing. Show me, like, you know, show don't tell. Like that's that's my uh, my preference. And something like that, it's like okay, clearly they know each other, they're familiar with each other because they have this specific, you know, tick for lack of a better word. Yeah, this specific tick or mannerism. Right. You know, it's like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to bring up a name. I'm just going to do this to see if you are familiar with who I am looking for, because I could say a name and like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that guy. And he went through here. But if you just do something like, you know, the, the rotating of the cigar over and over again, it's like, oh, yeah, I know who you're who you're looking for. Right. So like now he knows that cat has come through there. Yeah. You know, show don't tell. I think that works so much better in in certain instances. So, yeah, yeah, and it and it again, like I said, it, it works because you know, in a lot of these movies, you're like, oh, I'm looking for you know, Mad Dog Lewis or you know, you know, Wild Cat McCree or whatever his name is. You know, <laughs> like insert random nickname and and Old West name, and it's like, it's like, oh yeah, I saw him. It's like, oh, yeah, where'd you see him? Oh, I saw him down here. And then, like, you know, you he sends word to his gang and, like, they ambush the guy who's looking for him. They never saw him. They never they never heard of him. But, you know, they know that this guy who's looking for him, you know, maybe he's a bounty hunter or a marshal or whatever. And something's going on in the town. So they use it as a trap to, uh, you know, kill or rob him. You know, so if you're using just a specific mannerism that is easily recognizable without knowing a name, uh, I think that's a very cool storytelling device. And I think yeah. it uh, definitely l- takes away from the uh, the cliche of, like, oh, yeah, I know who that is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's right around the corner here. It's just uh, yeah. <laughs> duck into this alley and close your eyes. <laughs> right, right. Nothing bad will happen. It'll be great. <laughs> there was one funny moment that I thought, um, I thought they lifted it from Day of Anger, but if Day of Anger came out in the same year, I don't know which came first, but there was the part where a cat steals Hutch's horse while he's sleeping, and then he just leaves it with it. He leaves the horse with a dude and just says, hey, if a big guy comes running through here looking for his horse, you can give that to him. <laughs> that was just like what Lee Van Cleef's Ryan did in Day of Anger, you know? Yeah, uh, I liked that. Like that, you know, that was one of the, the few, like, really funny parts that, you know, we had been... Uh talking about what well, one part that i thought was particularly funny and i don't think it was intentionally funny I, it may have been was when uh cats in the room with the prostitute and they're having their conversation and this guy comes to the door and he's pounding on the door and he wants her to come out and he's like oh, i'm gonna break the door down so he does but the momentum takes him straight through the room all the way out the window on the other side <laughs> and he croaks yeah he goes flying through the the uh the window. See, I was expecting yeah. him to like back up and like charge at it, and like right as he was about to get there, they open the door, so he just flings himself. 
that's what I thought they were going to do too. <laughs> but I think the way they did it was, uh, you know, was just fine. <laughs> it was really funny. <laughs> it's like, oh man, how are they going to get out of this situation? Like, right? <laughs> yeah, she called. Oh yeah, it was it was great. I loved her character though too. She was feisty. Yes. Yeah. Is she the one that got slapped, or a couple of women got slapped around in this? Yeah, like that. That was what what was going to be uh, something I touched on. Like this movie, there was a lot of uh, a lot of uh, abuse towards women, which uh, yeah. I'm not a fan of. I get why it's in there because that's right. you know, you know, that was the style at the time. But like, there's even that one part where you can't quite tell. Like at the beginning during the card game before the duel. Uh, where Bill makes a joke and like the girl's like, "Oh yeah, oh that's funny," and he like slaps her, and then I can't tell if he kicked her or he kicked her chair. I was like, "Ah, oh, you can't yeah. laugh at that." It's like, what is wrong with you? I was going to ask you that. Yeah, I thought he, I wasn't sure if he kicked her or the chair either. I mean, probably you know he kicked the chair to make it seem like he was actually kicking her because you don't get to see that; you just get to see her reaction. And right. Yeah, I I didn't I'm not a fan of like I can watch a movie or a game or whatever uh you know play a game and you know violence against people is one thing but you know animals or or you know having to fight unarmed civilians yeah you know it doesn't necessarily mean you know it doesn't mean you know men or women but just like you know, I, I was recently playing the uh, one of the Tomb Raider games, and like you see, you're you're climbing along this ledge, and you see like a kid, because uh, there's a, a like a tsunami that just like f- floods through this village, and like all these people are dying, and you see this kid, and he's he's yelling, and you see the subtitles like, "Oh, help, mom, mom, help me! I can't, I can't hang on!" And like you're inching your way over there. And, like, as you're getting closer, he just falls and gets killed, like, just swept away by the current. And you're just like, whoa, that was just so out of nowhere. (laughs) Like, just out of nowhere. Like, you don't expect that. Like, wow. If it's there to progress the story, and in this case it is because you are the cause of the tsunami. Uh, so your your character is feeling more and more guilt. Cause it's like you're witnessing firsthand what your actions have wrought. Like, I'm fine with it. But if it's just for I'm slapping someone around just to slap them around. Like, yeah. <laughs> I can do without it because it, it's not necessary. Like the killing of an animal, uh, I'm generally not okay with. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, again, if it advances the plot, then, right. you know, I get it. I get it. Well, uh, on the same lines there, the one scene that made me really uncomfortable was where um, they get the guy, um, they go into this little town. I don't know if, it, I think it was a different town because it seemed like it was more Mexicans than Americans in there. And they were basically telling them some, some important person's going to come through here and you're going to be okay with it, which I guess they were referring to Bill. And they pick one guy out of the crowd and they were just like totally like not really torturing, but they were demeaning him. And then they were forcing him to bring a drink to the sheriff. And come to find out, the sheriff was sitting there, but he was dead. And that whole scene yeah. just bothered me. I, I hate scenes where bad guys do that to people, you know? Yeah, like they're imposing their will. Or, you know, 
there's it's like oh there's 12 of us and one of you and oh we're going to we're going to show you because you can't resist because we'll just you know kill you or kick the shit out of you like that's that's uh like that's shitty like i hate characters like that it's like oh i'm yeah. going to show you how badass i am by getting 10 other dudes and you know imposing our will on you and you have no chance because there's 10 of us and one of you like that's I hate those scenes. Like those characters are just so despicable. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've been in those situations where like, you know, you get cornered by like five or six people and they're like, Oh, well this is what's going to happen. And you're going to do this. And it's like, you're not really tough. There's six of you. And one of me, like how, how are you <laughs> imposing your will on me and showing me how much of a badass you are when you've got all this backup and I don't have anyone like, how are you? Yeah. Like, if anything, you're showing me, like, what a weak coward you are. And that, you know, it turns out that's what Bud is. Like, not only is he weak, he's stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I think this movie, of all the ones we've watched so far, these guys were the sleaziest bad guys. I mean, maybe uh, Ringo, those guys were pretty sleazy, too. But these guys were took it up a notch, I thought. Yeah, I think Sancho in the in the first one. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he was sleazy. Like he was the worst. But like they also made him like the you know with the 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 costume and the the, the makeup and everything. They made him sleazier. Oh, yeah. like, it's like the sweatier of... they are, the sleazier they are. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much. And I've noticed that in spaghetti westerns like when they're trying to make a character seem uh like more badass like you know, they'll be in a scene and like everybody's sweating except for them. Like we see that a lot with Lee Van Cleef and the stuff that we've watched. It's yeah. like, oh, it's nine hundred degrees in the blazing sun, but like he's not sweating. Like <laughs> the sweat is afraid to to roll down his cheek. Yeah, like it's <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh well he can't possibly uh can't possibly be a bad be a badass if he sweats. Yeah. <laughs> it's like no, he he still can. Yeah. <laughs> um you know there was one scene that I thought was really good. It was very tense where um uh you know, Cat had made the deal with Bud to give him the gold, so he drags him out to the or he makes him drag the horse out with the, by his neck to the chest that's buried in the ground and of course he gets the knife that was hidden there and whips it at Bud's throat, but there was a moment when you thought that Bud was going to get a shot off at him and they kept cutting back and forth and the camera kept getting closer, like to um, cat's face and like, you know, you got those piercing blue eyes and just waiting for it. And then finally Bud drops dead. It was like, that was a really intense scene. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Like it was, uh, there was definitely some, some real tension. Like you don't always get that, but this, this time you, you absolutely did because he was just like, like, is he going to get winged? Like, is he going to get taken out? And like, you know, now uh, uh, Hutch has got to finish the the mission. Like, what's going to go on? Like, because that would have been a great uh, plot twist. Oh uh, yeah, like having like the main guy get taken out. Because I'm sure we've seen, you know, that happen in a lot of uh, a lot of films where the hero gets. You know, gets mortally wounded, but right before he dies, is able to 
you know, fire off one last shot and kill the bad guy and save the day. You know, it's right. <laughs> I mean, we've seen it in the in the Shaw Brothers films all the time, where somebody is mortally wounded, but you know, goes on fighting like you know nothing ever happened. Yeah. <laughs> well, as long as they have plot information. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh, yeah. As long as he has uh, important uh, important uh, information for the plot. He's yeah. able to continue fighting. <laughs> we saw that with the sheriff in Day of Anger, where he got gunned down. You thought he was going to come out and be a badass. He, he, you know, he cleaned his act up, got his gun on, and then he got shot. But then he managed to squeeze off a couple before he died. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm dead now. But I managed <laughs> to take a few guys with me. <laughs> yeah, it's the uh, Jennifer Grey trick in uh, Red Dawn. It's like, ha-ha, we shot her. Oh, she has grenades. Yeah. <laughs> but what was interesting, though, now, so the scene that we were just talking about where we thought that Bud was going to get a shot off before he dies, Bill finds out that they're gone, and he's pissed, and he's trying to find out who did it, and he basically figures out that the guy that was supposed to be watching was sleeping at the time, and he had told him, watch Bud, don't take your eyes off him, and the guy's like, well, I was only asleep for a couple of minutes, but then he figured out that Bud and uh, and and Cat... I guess they put what um like covers on the horse's shoes to hide their tracks. Yep. So he he's like, "Oh, that would take, you know, more than a few minutes to do that." So he basically comes out, kills the guy, and he takes off, you know, with with a couple of men to try and, you know, catch up to them and one of the guys that stays behind goes, "Well, what are we supposed to do?" And he goes, "Try not to fall asleep." <laughs> Which I thought was good advice. Yeah, it was pretty good cuz they're like, yeah, they had they had uh gotten rid of all the horses. And the horse, and they had, uh, like you said, they had wrapped their feet so that they wouldn't leave tracks. Yeah. And it's like, you know, how long do you think that would take? Like more than a couple minutes. I know. I can imagine. It's not like, you know, you got plastic bags and zip ties that you can do it pretty quick. It's <laughs> Yeah. You know, and you don't know how many horses there are. And they'd left all the saddles. So even if you track the horses down, you're going to have to walk them back. Yeah. Bring the bridles with you. I just thought that was funny. Try not to fall asleep. <laughs> but man, when frickin' Hutch was pulling on the ropes, and you're like, oh, he's going to break the wood. He's going to break the wood. <laughs> and then he does. That was so fucking awesome. I love that. Oh, yeah. Just like kind of flexing. <sighs> what does it remind... There's a... Uh... <laughs> it's probably a little sacrilegious, but there's a picture... Of, uh, <laughs> I know what you're gonna say. It's Jesus up on the cross, and he's just like super jacked, and he just like rips o- rips the <laughs> the things down. It's just like <laughs> I've seen I don't know one. where I don't know what it's for, but I've seen it a bunch of times, usually around Easter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. It also oh. reminded me of a scene from, um, I think it was uh, uh, came out in the last five years or so. It was a Hercules movie starring The Rock. And he does something similar where he's chained to these pillars, but then he realizes his family's in danger, and that pisses him off enough to have the strength to, you know, topple the entire temple that he's chained to or whatever. That sounds that sounds familiar. Yeah. I think it was a Hercules movie, I'm pretty sure. 
but it's been so long since I saw that. But it just worked here because, especially since he knew he had cracked the wood, and all he needed was one more tug to rip it apart. But he waited until he—I forget how he did it. He got the bad guy to come over to him, and then he just pulled his arms out and just squashed the guy's head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He uh, he surprised him while he was uh, slightly distracted, and then let everybody else in and like slowly dispatched them one at a time. That was great. That was so good. Yeah, and that whole ending was interesting and I I had a feeling if he was going to set off the dynamite to bury the treasure, he he w- he was he would have already taken the treasure out of the treasure box. There was even though he said he was joking, cat, there was no way it was in there if he was if he knew the place was going to blow. Yeah, he wouldn't have let the uh the treasure stay there like right i'm just wondering when he had time to do that after after he killed bud i think so that's what i was thinking because they make it seem like he killed bud and went immediately to the cantina yeah they made it seem that way but i got the impression that he had he had done some things first he prepared himself first like like they usually do you know the good guy gets everything going you know, behind the scenes, like off camera, and then all of a sudden, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how long it would take to get from one point to the other because they they really didn't give us a lot of sense of scale or like establishing where things were in relation to the other. Right. You know, it's like okay, we had to get from here to here. Like he had to go. He had to find a a new carriage. Like maybe he found the same one that they let go down the river and like somehow it was okay, but like he doesn't swim. So how did they get it? And it's like, where did he get this, (laughs) this carriage? Where did he get the horses? Where did he get, you know, like obviously the bags were inside the, the, the uh, trunk. So like that wasn't a huge deal, but it's like, where did all of this other stuff come from? Yeah. But, you know, know, it's, oh, he did it off screen, so it's okay. Right. <laughs> Which I'm I'm fine with, because you don't want to show him doing this. You know, you want to leave a little bit of mystery there, you know, because not even Hutch knows about it. Because Hutch is there, ready to shoot him. I think that was his insurance, so that Hutch wouldn't shoot him. But, and you know what, though, at the end of the day, I think they were the good guys, because he saves Hutch's life. He didn't have to. He throws him on his shoulder and gets him out of there before the explosion, you know? See, I think it's because he owed Hutch a debt. Because uh, Hutch saved him when he was hanging upside down. Hutch also oh, helped him uh, swim. And even after he screwed Hutch over by taking his horse and leaving it, yeah. <laughs> you know, they still... Again, it was an uneasy alliance, but it was an alliance nonetheless. Uh, yeah. And... I think he had just enough. He had obviously more honor than Bill San Antonio did. Because oh, absolutely. Bill was like, yeah. oh, I'm going to fake my own death to get out of paying my guys. Plus, I think they're getting ready to kill me and cash in yeah. the bounty. So, you know, time to move on. Oh, and you just mentioned, too, that one scene where he was, um, uh, Cat gets in that trap and he's hanging upside down. Man, he could, he still put up a pretty good fight, even though he was hanging upside down. Yeah, he still managed to, like, kick everybody's ass except that one dude that was about to shoot him until Hutch yeah. showed up. <laughs> Hutch ex machina. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, cut me down, God's sakes. 
All right, so I think we have covered this movie in depth, um, and we've got a lot more to go because next time we'll check out Ace High, which is the sequel to this one, and uh, I'd love to see how that one goes. So your final thoughts on this, Pat? Um, I liked this. Uh, Like I said, I liked that the plot was more than I'm seeking revenge on Guy A because he did you know, this thing to me when I was a kid or, you know, he did whatever, you know. Um, I will say that I'm hoping that the next movie does not have the entire same cast playing different characters. Because <laughs> um, I was not a fan of that in The, the Return of Ringo. But... Yeah, uh, I don't, all I know is that Terrence Hill plays uh, Cat again. I don't know about any of the other characters. I just think it's funny that his name is Cat Stevens. I know. And, you know, I looked it up, and Cat Stevens did have an album in 67. But I don't think they named the character because of him, because he wasn't really that popular. He was just starting out. Yeah, I think it was just it, just a coincidence. Yeah. Unless, like, in the next movie, there's a guy named, like, Jim Morrison or something. <laughs> Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, oh man! But yeah, I I liked this a lot. Um, I liked. I think uh, Bill San Antonio was my favorite character because he actually had some personality, as opposed. To, see, the villains tend to have more personality than the heroes in these things, because the right. heroes are usually just like these stoic, you know, straight faced. You know, like everything we've seen from Ringo. Like Ringo was, you know, interesting, but then we see uh, him again in. Uh, uh, Day of Anger, and he was just like this bland character who had very little significant character growth. But the villains seem to be the ones that are like the more memorable characters. Yeah, um, I I tend to enjoy the villains more in these. Yeah, I mean, that's like not, you mentioned Sancho. Yeah, like it's you know it's not the actor's fault. I think the actors do a good job, but they're you know there's this cliche stoicism that has to be associated with all these heroes. And, you know, I think we see that uh, over and over again. Like you generally don't have like a fun, you know, hero. It's not like, you know, the Shaw brothers films where the villains are the evil stoic ones. And, you know, whoever the, uh, the heroes are like, they're always laughing and joking and having a good time. Right. And that's just it. I mean, these guys are all anti-heroes, so they don't have to be, um, they don't have to be goody two shoes. They don't have to be Superman. They could be closer to the Punisher, you know, or Batman. You know, yeah, like you know, they'll, you know, and that's what I like about antiheroes is that you know they have this their own morality, which may not line up with what society's morality or you know what you would expect from you know a clean hero. You know, we see, you know, westerns have this kind of. Uh, not cliche, but there's a very specific way that they present heroes and villains. Like, you know, the bad guys are always wearing the black hat and the black outfits and the good guys always have the white hat. But a lot of the stuff that we've been watching, like these guys are morally gray and their clothing represents that. Like they are not, you know, like they'll wear brown or tan or, you know, off white or beige, you know, indicating that they are not pure of heart but they're not, you know, evil. They're not 
bad guys. Like they have, you know, questionable, questionable morality, but it's still towards the lighter side of the spectrum. Oh yeah. And you know, that's the thing too, is that the Hollywood Westerns are much more what you described before, where they're the good guy wears white, the bad guy wears black. There's a clear delineation between good and white. There's not a lot of gray area. And it's these movies where they kind of give us that. They sort of take the traditional Hollywood movie and Hollywood Western and turn it on its ear and and present it to you almost in a, in a more somewhat realistic, a more grittier kind of setting than you got from like Hollywood. And don't get me wrong, I, there's a bunch of Hollywood Westerns that I freaking love. But for different reasons, you know. Yeah, no, it's and it's the uh, the classic, you know. Even looking at, um, you know, tropes—that's the word I was looking for earlier. Oh, Some okay. of the classic fantasy tropes, where you know, the bad guys are always ugly and misshapen and you know, vaguely humanoid. <laughs> you know, like we look at Lord of the Rings. That's the classic example where all the bad guys are elks, uh, elks, <laughs> orcs, and goblins. <laughs> All the good guys are elves. I combined elves and orcs. Then they're orcs. elves. Um, oh, no. Yeah, like you know, the the elves are these beings of of you know pure good, and they're all like you know beautiful representations of humanity. And you know the orcs and the orakai and the the goblins and the trolls—they're all ugly and they're all forces of evil. So it's like, right. oh, you know. Oh, who is our hero? Oh, this handsome man here. And who's the bad guy? Oh, this lumpy, misshapen, you know, creature who, you know, looks like he's in pain just to be alive. Right. And it's like, oh, well, I know who I'm rooting for, you know, and, you know, (laughs) that trope kind of, you know, has been more recently turned on its head. You'll still see that over and over again, like the ugly guys, you know tend to be the more evil ones but like you know then they'll completely switch it around you know like in game of thrones where you know like oh cersei lannister is supposed to be the most beautiful woman in all of the seven kingdoms and she's like the worst you know (laughs) so you can't judge them based on how they look right right which i i do like yeah and speaking of, you know, good guys and bad guys, you just sort of made me think back to Day of Anger, which we we did last episode. I think that was... I, I didn't see it clearly until this very moment, but there was no, no pun intended, there was no clear bad guy in that one. It was Lee Van Cleef who ended up kind of shifting over to the dark side as the movie progressed. And I think that's what caught me off guard because I expected Lee Van Cleef and Giuliano Gemma to be going up against a bad guy. When in fact, one of them was the bad guy all along, you know, and that actually makes that movie even better for me now. <laughs> See, I, I look at it as Lee Van Cleef was definitely the bad guy, but he was he was a bad guy who was out against other bad guys, and he corrupted Giuliano. Yeah, and but he, he got uh, badder as the movie went on. Yeah, and you and again, it was represented in his clothes. Like Giuliano was uh, wearing dark blue, so not quite black, right? But getting darker <laughs> as it went along. Like when we first see him, he's wearing you know lighter colors, you know, representing his his innocence and his his uh, his goodness, and he's yeah. much more happy go lucky. 
once he starts wearing the darker colors that, you know, were literally given to him by Lee Van Cleef, he starts acting darker. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, getting back to this film, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I was very pleasantly surprised by it. I, I did feel that the first half with the flashbacks was a little convoluted, that maybe they could have done something to either tighten that up or delineate the the flashbacks, maybe, you know, the little sepia or something. But otherwise, you know, the second time viewing it made more sense to me. And uh, it's very interesting to see Terrence Hill and, you know, Bud Spencer together for the first time. And I'm definitely interested to see them again together in subsequent films. So looking forward to that. So, Patsy, why don't you let the folks at home know where they can find you online? All right. Uh, best place is uh, throwdownthursdaypodcast.com uh, or, as we mentioned at the beginning, thedorkening.com. You can find all the different shows that uh, I uh, produce and host uh, between Indie Creator Spotlight, uh, The Lot of Sports Show, Shark Bites, and... Uh, of course, the headliner show that I do, Throwdown Thursday, uh, that I do with my wife. Um, we're always doing uh, very interesting interviews and, and covering uh, new and exciting characters. Um, Shark Bites is back after a three-month hiatus. Uh, I interviewed author Timothy Miller, who just released his debut novel, The Strange Case of Eliza Doolittle, which uh, I did not... Uh, I was not familiar with who Eliza Doolittle was, but uh, it's the characters from My Fair Lady crossing over with Sherlock and uh, and Doctor Watson and uh, some other characters. And I don't want to spoil it because it's a phenomenal twist. Uh, some other characters that you might find around London around the same time, but that you oh, wouldn't cool. necessarily put together with these characters. Uh, so we oh. talk about that. Um, it's a, it's a really good interview and, uh, I've been reading the book and I think it's fantastic, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's where you can find all of our shows. Uh, we're on Spotify. Uh, you can join our Facebook groups and, uh, for anybody interested, we are currently running, uh, through the, uh, the loudest sports show. We're doing Super Bowl squares. So, uh, we still have, uh, about half the spots left. And I'm going to be giving away uh, your choice of jersey or helmets, uh, all autograph stuff from both the teams that are playing in the Super Bowl. And, you know, because we're based in New England, we have a lot of New England fans. Uh, also some signed Patriots gear. So nice. Uh, be sure to uh, check that out. Spots are filling up fairly quickly. Uh, and I know a lot of people are doing this, but, uh, you know, be sure to check us out, grab a couple of spots, and uh, I think you'll uh, think you'll be uh, pleasantly surprised because even if you don't win, everybody who does not win but enters uh, will be put into a random drawing for one of the prizes that does not get given away because um, there's going to be more than four. Wow, that's awesome, dude. Cool, cool. Well, yeah. Pat, thank you once again for joining me today. Oh, of course. I, I always love this. Yeah, <laughs> this is so much fun.
And thank you, dear listeners, for joining us again on this journey into Shaw Brothers movies and spaghetti westerns. Don't forget, as I mentioned at the beginning, The East Meets the West is part of the Dorkening Podcast Network, as Pat explained, too. So don't forget to check out all their great shows at thedorkening.com. Send us your thoughts on today's episode at theeastmeetsthewest42 at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll also find our sister show, Then Is Now, where we discuss all the cool stuff you may have missed out on and stuff you should know. Folks, don't forget to go wherever you download podcasts and leave us a great review so that more people can find the show. And the East Meets the West podcast is now on YouTube, so just go to youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1, and you'll find all our podcasts there, plus other fun stuff. And be sure not only to hit the subscribe button, but also share it with your friends if you can, and get them to subscribe as well. That's all the time we've got today. Join us again on our next episode of The East Meets the West.